This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We are here today to consider nominees for three important positions, ambassadors to China, Japan, and Singapore. On the first panel, we'll hear from Ambassador Nick Burns to be the ambassador to China. I understand Senator Markey will introduce Ambassador Burns, so I'll turn to him at this time. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Risch. It's my absolute honor and pleasure to introduce our nominee today, Nicholas Burns, nominated to be the Ambassador of the United States to the People's Republic of China. Ambassador Burns is a cherished son of Massachusetts, a fellow Boston College alumnus, and a proud member of Red Sox Nation. I'd also like to welcome Ambassador Burns' wife, Libby, uh, who has uh, joined us today. Name a diplomatic flashpoint of the last four decades, and there is a good chance that Ambassador Burns was either a witness or an active participant. In his exemplary career as a member of the Foreign Service, he served four U.S. presidents. Uh, among his assignments, he spent five years at the National Security Council, first as Director of Soviet Affairs under President George H.W. Bush, and later as Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia Affairs under President Clinton. In those roles, President Burns helped shepherd the United States through the collapse of the Soviet Union and the establishment of new relationships with the former Soviet bloc countries. In 1997, he was named U.S. Ambassador to Greece, where he helped to expand our bilateral defense relationship and counterterrorism. In 2001, President George Bush uh, selected him to serve as U.S. Ambassador to NATO. He took this post one month before the attacks of 9-11, just one month before 9-11, when the Alliance invoked Article 5 for the first time in its history. He later served as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, the highest-ranking Foreign Service officer in Foggy Bottom. Ambassador Burns has established a deep understanding of the United States' relationship with China and has been a returning visitor to China for more than three decades. As a junior officer, he first accompanied Secretary George Shultz in 1988 and President Bush in 1989. He later accompanied Secretary Madeleine Albright to Hong Kong in June of 1997 for its handover from the United Kingdom to the People's Republic of China. After his retirement from the Foreign Service, Ambassador Burns turned his attention to training the next generation of diplomats and security professionals at the Harvard Kennedy School. In short, there is no more qualified person than Ambassador Burns to serve in Beijing as our top diplomat. I am confident that Ambassador Burns will seek to engage Beijing where we must on the existential issues of the climate crisis and nuclear nonproliferation, on curbing the flow of synthetic opioids to our shores and bringing North Korea to the negotiating table. But I'm equally confident that he will speak out forcefully against the Chinese government's abuses in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and elsewhere. In Ambassador Burns, the men and women of the Foreign Service will have no greater champion. He has the experience, the knowledge, and the leadership skills for this critical post in a difficult but crucial time in our relationship with the People's Republic of China. In a commencement speech at our alma mater, Boston College, in 2002, Ambassador Burns concluded in summing up the school's ethos. It is the core belief that how we lead our lives should not be just about and for ourselves, but about what we all can do. 
in the poet Tennyson's words, to seek a newer world here on Earth. We are honored that you have again decided to take this opportunity, Ambassador Burns, to once again seek that newer world here on Earth. I yield back, Mr. Chairman, and I uh, urge the support of every committee member uh, for this uh, great ambassador. Thank you, Senator Markey, for a glowing introduction. Uh, we appreciate it. You're, uh, of course, an important member of our committee, so uh, we, we look forward to you joining us uh, on the regular dais uh, when you're finished. Uh, Ambassador Burns says, welcome to you and your wife. You're an outstanding public servant. As a career foreign service officer, we're grateful to you and your family for your willingness to serve our country again. As you know, if confirmed, you'll have a monumental task before you. As I've said before, the China of 2021 is not the China of 1971 or even the China of 2011. China today is challenging the United States and destabilizing the international community across every dimension of power, political, diplomatic, economic, military, and even cultural, with an alternative and deeply disturbing model for global governance. I truly believe that China today, led by the Communist Party and propelled by Xi Jinping's hypernationalism, is unlike any challenge we have faced as a nation before. For decades, we failed to comprehensively address China's growing reach from its predatory economic behavior and aggressive efforts to coerce its neighbors in the maritime domain, its dangerous flexing of military muscle against Taiwan, to the crushing of the religious and cultural autonomy of Tibet, and its campaign of genocide against the Uyghur people, as well as the imposition of a chilling system of digital authoritarianism to suppress and oppress its own people, China today is more active and more emboldened than ever before. There should be little doubt that the right basic framework for thinking about our relationship with China today is strategic competition. Not because that is necessarily what we want, but because of the choices Beijing is making. Therefore, if confirmed, you'll need to be clear-eyed about Beijing's intentions and actions and play a key role in calibrating this administration's still emergent policy and strategy regarding China. This committee has engaged extensively on China over the last several months, including passing the Strategic Competition Act with overwhelming bipartisan support. Enacting the bill is one critical step in ensuring a solid framework for White House and State Department efforts to address the challenge posed by China. I know you bring to this job a wealth of diplomatic experience and skill, so we're very interested in hearing from you today about how you think of the challenge and the international, that the challenge that the international community faces from China, and how you think we need to frame our strategy for success in this new era of strategic competition. I look forward to hearing your testimony. Let me turn to the ranking member for his opening comments. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'm Like most members, or many members of the committee, have known Nick for a long time. We first met in the early part of the last decade in Luxembourg, uh, when he was serving as uh, the ambassador to NATO. Uh, it's, uh, I think, appropriate that, uh, that uh, Ambassador Burns was appointed to this position, which really demands uh, a bipartisan approach. Uh, and I think Congress, uh, notwithstanding uh, our other emaciations on other issues, has certainly been, uh, has taken a bipartisan approach to the challenges that, uh, that China faces, or that China has presented to us and that we will face over the uh, rest of this century, I believe. 
Uh, the position of Ambassador to China is one of the most important ambassadorial nominations we will consider in this committee. The People's Republic of China is leveraging its political, diplomatic, economic, military, technological, and ideological power to wage strategic competition against the United States. The Chinese Communist Party policies and actions threaten U.S. interests and values as well as allies and partners on just about every continent, but particularly in the Indo-Pacific. Well, this challenge uh, will persist for decades. The competition is here now, and we must act urgently. Advancing U.S. interests in the Indo-Pacific region uh, must be our number one foreign policy priority. If confirmed, Ambassador Burns, you will be on the front lines of this competition. There are a few priorities that form the foundation of the bipartisan Strategic Competition Act uh, led by Senator Menendez and myself, which passed through this committee earlier this year. First, China's growing military might is dramatically shifting the regional balance of power in the Indo-Pacific in its favor. We need to counter China's uh, conventional and nuclear buildup that threatens our interests and our allies. Uh, nowhere is China uh, flexing it, uh, this military might as much as it is in the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan's uh, President Tsai is right. Quote, if uh, Taiwan were to fall, the consequences would be uh, catastrophic for regional peace and democratic alliance systems. End quote. It is imperative that we work actively to deter uh, PRC's coercion and aggression towards Taiwan. Another issue that is not discussed as often, but must be, is China's pursuit of life sciences research with potential for weaponization causing concern about potential violations of the Biological Weapons Convention. I've introduced legislation, the Biological Weapons Policy Act, that would give our country team in China a larger role in ensuring that biological research cooperation with China does not put us or the world at risk. Second, our diplomatic mission in China must be strengthened to address the economic and political facets of the competition at hand. That includes providing information to decision makers, in Washington and how the CCP seeks to exert undue uh, political influence in our open society. On the economic front, we must ensure our, ec our economic core and mission China is up to the task of dealing with uh, new challenges. China's rolling out laws and regulations to punish companies for complying with U.S. law, including our sanctions laws. The Chinese government is also stamping out all free market activity by asserting control over its financial institutions and its technology uh, companies. Another challenge where we need an active economic core is addressing pressing supply chain vulnerabilities, especially in technology, uh, technology and healthcare. Uh, if, of course, advancing human rights must continue to be a central priority in our China policy. Ambassador Burns, you face a tough environment. China said it won't work with us on anything until the United States gives into the demands of its two lists. You and I discussed those lists yesterday, and uh, someday I hope to be able to see those lists. How the Biden administration plans to deal with that is not clear. In our uh, diplomatic engagements, China has repeatedly shown a lack of interest in good faith discussions. Yet the administration continues to assert that China can be a partner on a variety of issues, notably climate. On Taiwan, I applaud recent defense sales, but we have also uh, seen a lot of uh, unclear messaging including recent allusions to a Taiwan agreement. And despite China's massive and unconstrained nuclear buildup, the administration is considering, considering a sole-purpose nuclear declaratory policy that would put U.S. allies at uh, immense risk and shake confidence in U.S. deterrence commitments. 
I know that our allies have uh, communicated serious objections to the administration on this topic. So far, the administration is refusing to share those communications with Congress. This issue is even more important given uh, China's uh, test this past weekend of a fractional orbital bombardment system carrying a, a hypersonic glide vehicle. Such a system would allow the PRC to completely circumvent U.S. early warning capabilities and increase the vulnerability of the continental U.S. to a nuclear attack. I look forward to hearing how you plan to address all of these challenges and to help us win this competition. With that, I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Rich. With that, uh, Ambassador, you're recognized. We ask you to summarize your statement in about five minutes or so. Uh, we will include your full statement for the record. Uh, and with that, the floor is yours. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, thanks very much for the opportunity to be with you this morning. I'm very grateful to President Biden for this nomination to be the next United States Ambassador to the People's Republic of China. I owe profound thanks to my wife of 40 years, Libby, who's with me uh, today, seated just behind me. Uh, together, we've served the U.S. government overseas in Mauritania, West Africa, in Egypt, in Israel, in Greece, and at NATO in Belgium. And both of us are grateful to our three daughters, our son-in-law, and our grandchildren. If confirmed by the Senate, I look forward to returning to public service and the State Department where I've spent the bulk of my professional career. I've worked for administrations of both parties. And I'd be honored to lead our team at the U.S. Mission in China. That team is on the front lines of this complicated and consequential relationship that we have with China. Um, I'd like to explain um, our policy and the policy that I would like to support if confirmed by the Senate. Uh, Secretary Tony Blinken said in March that the United States relationship with the PRC is the biggest geopolitical test of the 21st century. We will compete and compete vigorously with the People's Republic where we should, including on jobs and the economy, on critical infrastructure, on emerging technologies. As President Biden has said, when the United States competes on a level playing field, there is no country on earth that can match us. We will cooperate with the PRC where it is in our interest, including on climate change, counter-narcotics, global health, and of course on non-proliferation. The world cannot solve the climate crisis without the PRC doing more to reduce their emissions. It's to our benefit to maintain engagement between our peoples as well, including students, scholars, diplomats, and journalists, so long as America's laws are respected. Finally and crucially, we will challenge Beijing where we must, including when it takes actions that run counter to American values and American interests, actions that might threaten the security of the United States or our allies and partners or undermine the rules-based international order. The PRC seeks to become the most powerful country economically, politically, and militarily in the Indo-Pacific. We have to stand with our allies and our friends to uphold a free and open Indo-Pacific, including by maintaining America's commercial and military superiority in 21st century technologies. We also have to hold the PRC accountable for failing to play by the rules on trade and investment, including its theft of intellectual property, use of state subsidies, dumping of goods, and unfair labor practice, practices. These hurt American workers, and they hurt American businesses. Beijing has been an aggressor 
against India along their long Himalayan border, against Vietnam, the Philippines, and others in the South China Sea, against Japan in the East China Sea, and Beijing has launched an intimidation campaign against Australia, and even more recently, Lithuania. The PRC's genocide in Xinjiang, its abuses in Tibet, its smothering of Hong Kong's autonomy and freedoms, and its bullying of Taiwan are unjust and must stop. Beijing's recent actions against Taiwan are especially objectionable. The United States is right to continue its one China policy, but we're also right to support the peaceful resolution of disputes in this region and to oppose unilateral actions that undermine the status quo and undermine the stability of the region. The administration and Congress together on a bipartisan basis should help Taiwan to maintain a self-defense capability, and that's the language of the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979. The Biden administration as well is surely right to seek effective channels of communication with Beijing to manage this competition responsibly, to diminish the risk of an accident, accidental conflict, and above all, to maintain the peace. The United States has to proceed from a position of strength and pursue intense diplomacy in all these matters. Beijing proclaims that the East is rising and the West is in decline. I'm confident in our own country. I believe that together with our allies and our partners, we can prove them wrong. This will require very close alignment here in Washington between Congress and the executive branch. The bipartisan Senate passage of the Innovation and Competition Act earlier this year is a very wise investment in America's future and our ability to compete. And finally, Mr. Chairman, I'd say this, my final point. The People's Republic of China is not an Olympian power. It's a country of extraordinary strength, but it also has substantial weaknesses and challenges demographically, economically, politically. We should have confidence in our strengths, American strengths, confidence in our business community, in our innovation community, in our universities, in our ability to attract the best students from around the world, confidence in our unmatched military and our first-rate foreign service and civil service, confidence in our values that stand in brilliant opposition to China's authoritarian regime. We will succeed if we build this American strength around our diplomacy with the People's Republic of China. And on that basis, Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, I'm looking forward to working with you, the ranking member, and Republicans and Democrats on this committee. I've enjoyed my meetings over the last three weeks, and I hope together we can form an effective and strong policy towards China. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Ambassador. Uh, we'll start around with five minutes. Before I start mine, let me ask some uh, questions we asked for the committee as a whole. Uh, these are questions that speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch, and we expect and will be seeking from you. So I'd ask you to provide just a simple yes or no answer to these questions. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Do you commit to keep the committee fully and currently informed about the activities that will be under your purview? 
Yes. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. And do you commit to properly, uh, promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. Thank you. Well, let me start off. Uh, first of all, I think your statement encompasses many of the sentiments, concerns, and questions that members of the committee have. And so it was uh, very encompassing of many of the issues I think we care about. Uh, and together, we have to work to make sure that Xi Jinping is wrong, that uh, the East is not setting, but it will continue to shine. Now, many experts emphasize the importance of U.S. collaboration and joint action with allies, partners, and multilateral organizations to address the challenges that China poses. However, collaboration can be harder in practice than in theory, particularly when countries have different views and competing interests. In what specific areas can you speak to that collaboration has been helpful in addressing the challenges that China poses? And in what areas and with which countries do you see particular opportunities or constraints? Mr. Chairman, thank you. And I think this is the right question to ask about how we form a strategy that can be successful against the Chinese uh, government. Uh, the comparative advantage that we have versus China is that we have treaty allies. We have partners who deeply believe in us and the Chinese really do not. And so in the Indo-Pacific, I think President Biden has tried to emphasize the need for us to be very closely aligned with Japan, with South Korea, with Australia, our treaty allies, our defense partners, the Philippines and Thailand. As you know, and I think every administration since President Clinton has been working on this, we have a newfound security partner in India. That makes a great difference to have Indian American interests aligned as they clearly are strategically in the Indo-Pacific. And President Biden, of course, has taken the Quad idea. And I, I, I give credit to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for reinvigorating the Quad in 2019 and 20, but President Biden has held two head of government meetings of the Quad, one virtual and one in person at the White House. President Biden's initiative for AUKUS to deepen our, our strategic engagement with our great ally, Australia, and our ally, the United Kingdom, could be transformational. And I think it's been widely praised to be such in the Indo-Pacific. So as we confront China, whether it's on the military balance of power in the Indo-Pacific, whether it's the fight that we have to convince China, push China to play by the rules on trade, we have a coincidence of views with Japan, the European Union, the European allies on all these issues. And I think uh, the president has focused on the Indo-Pacific, but he's also focusing on the European allies. And I I've, I've, have seen a change in the last two or three years in the attitudes of most European governments, now much more skeptical about China on 5G, on China's nefarious Belt and Road Initiative influence in Eastern Europe. And so I do think this is a big part of the strategy that we need to continue to work on. Now, let me turn to uh, Taiwan. Uh, given increasing aggression and threatening rhetoric uh, from Beijing, uh, some have called for an end to the policy of strategic ambiguity with regard to Taiwan. Uh, how do you think the United States can most effectively signal our resolve and deter Chinese aggression towards Taiwan? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is a central question these days, particularly after all the bullying and intimidation tactics of the Chinese towards Taiwan, the sending of 150 Chinese air, aircrafts into the air identification zone of Taiwan just 10 days ago. 
my own view, and uh, fortunately this is backed up, I think, by both the Biden administrations and every other administration going back four decades, is that we have enormous latitude, Congress and the executive branch under the Taiwan Relations Act, to deepen our security assistance to Taiwan. The Taiwan Relations Act, written in January 1979, is remarkably modern for the strategic questions we're facing in 2021. It, it says that we have an unofficial relationship with Taiwan, obviously, but we have a responsibility uh, to help Taiwan achieve a self-defense capability through the provision of defense articles and services. So in the last, since 2009, the Obama and the Trump and the Biden administrations have provided about $30 billion worth of, worth of assistance to Taiwan. Given what China's done, given China's frankly objectionable statements towards Taiwan, uh, I think the Congress and the executive branch have every right to continue to deepen our security cooperation, to expand our, our, our arms provisions to Taiwan. That's the most important thing we can do. In addition to that, the Taiwan Relations Act also calls for the United States to provide the strongest possible deterrent in the Western Pacific, the language of 1979, or the Indian Ocean as we would refer to it today. And in addition to that, as a third measure, we ought to be asking, and we are asking our allies, to show a real commitment to Taiwan. And we're seeing that from Japan and other allies. Finally, Mr. Chairman, uh, we've, got to, we've got to be very clear about our criticism of China. And what the Chinese are trying to do to this very successful society within, on Taiwan, with this very healthy democracy, extraordinary performance in the coronavirus, is to simply intimidate them. And so we've all got to speak up and shine a light on those Chinese actions and Chinese rhetoric. That's essentially the policy uh, of the last 40 years. I think that policy is the right one and the smart one for today. Thank you. Senator Rich. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Let's, let's uh, pick up with uh, Taiwan where, where you left off. Uh, how, how do you uh, differentiate what's happened, what happened in uh, Hong Kong with Taiwan? Uh, in reading and listening to uh, the, the Chinese, it seems to me that Taiwan's even more of an irritant to them than uh, Hong Kong was. Fortunately, Taiwan's got the, the, the sea between uh, themselves and, and China. Uh, but um, I, I really fear that, uh, that we're going to see the same kind of uh, push in the envelope in Taiwan that uh, gets it to a point where there's a crisis. What, what are your views on that? Senator, you're right to ask that question. I share your concern. Uh, as Senator Markey mentioned, I was State Department spokesperson. I accompanied Secretary Albright on June 30th, 1997, to the handover from the UK to the PRC on Hong Kong. And all of us remember, but I particularly remember from our meeting with the Chinese leadership that day, the commitments they made to the people of Hong Kong and to the rest of us around the world, and the Chinese have gone back on every one of those commitments. So if we link that to Taiwan, we obviously cannot trust China to meet the commitments it's made on the Taiwan issue. When Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act, when administration after administration pursued a one-China policy, we obviously did so on the presumption that there would be peace in the cross-strait relationship between Taiwan and China. And there isn't much peace today. There is assertiveness and aggression. 
So I don't think we can, we certainly cannot trust the Chinese in this issue. We have to be aware of their rhetoric, aware of it, and the rhetoric of its leader and many other Chinese uh, leaders in recent months has been that they intend to take back Taiwan. Our responsibility is to make Taiwan a tough nut to crack, help it increase its asymmetric defenses through the Taiwan Relations Act, and other countries can do that as well. It's a central issue in the relationship now. And, and I, I agree with that. The, the thing that uh, I, I guess I'm concerned about as much as anything is watching what they've been doing with their incursions into the airspace uh, reminds me a lot of Hong Kong. It's just pushing the envelope. It's a camel's nose in the tent, and it just gets worse and worse uh, until, it, uh, it, until it collapses. So that, that's going to be something I think we're going to have to watch very closely. Uh, let's talk about uh, China's uh, uh, nuclear buildup. I, I, do you agree that they're uh, pursuing a massive nuclear buildup uh, in China? It certainly appears so, both in the western part of China with their IC, the reports of the ICBM expansion and also with this novel delivery system that um, has been publicized of late. Uh, one thing that uh, is very concerning uh, to me and I, I think other members of this committee is that um, the, there's, all, there's this discussion within the administration of a sole purpose uh, uh, nuclear uh, declaratory policy. Uh, which is, in essence, a no first use. It's another way of saying no first use, but it's not as direct, but it's, it's the exact same thing. Um, I, I would hope you'd become a, uh, a spokesman within the uh, uh, administration uh, about uh, how uh, damaging uh, that, that kind of a, a declaration would be, a sole purpose declaration. I, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but I can guarantee you that the, the allies, particularly the ones that are counting on us in the Indo-Pacific region, are, uh, are very concerned about the declaration of sole purpose uh, nuclear declaratory policy. What are your thoughts on that? Senator, I appreciated our conversation last evening about this in your office. And um, as I explained, um, I'm a private citizen appearing before you as a nominee without access to the intelligence. I don't have a security clearance. so I'm very reluctant to speak specifically about the nuclear posture review, which is underway. But I do know that President Biden uh, has, has indicated clearly that he is uh, going to support the strongest possible and the safest American nuclear deterrent, as every president has done uh, since President Harry Truman. And that's obviously an obligation to the American people. I would also just add, Mr. Uh, Senator Risch, um, we also talked about this last week. I think the spotlight should be on China. They have said for decades, the Chinese government, that they want to have a minimum nuclear deterrent. They are blasting past that definition, and they're rapidly engaged in the buildup of their nuclear arsenal, including the disturbing reports of the hypersonic uh, technology. So I think the spotlight has to be on the government of China. Well, I, I agree with that. Um, I, uh, you having the credentials that you have on a bipartisan basis, and your uh, deep knowledge of our allies, and uh, particularly ones that uh, we have a defensive uh, posture with, uh, I would hope you would be a spokesman within the administration uh, regarding this. I, I'm very concerned about it. A lot of people are concerned about it. Uh, and I understand that uh, you, you've done an excellent job throughout your career of carrying water on both shoulders for uh, 
for administration from either party. I think that brings a tremendous uh, amount of credibility to you, and I think uh, your words in that regard would be very important uh, um, as they uh, proceed with the nuclear posture review. I have no doubt they will be uh, consulting with you given the position you're in. So I would urge uh, that you communicate in the strongest terms to the administration the uh, concern that our allies in the region have for this policy. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Burns, first of all, let me uh, thank you for your incredible career of public service. Uh, you have really uh, advanced American values globally in every post that you've held. And I personally have appreciated your advice during very difficult times. So thank you very much for your service to our country and your willingness to continue uh, in this critical role as our ambassador in China. There are so many issues that we need to talk about. And we've already mentioned a lot of our national security concerns. We know that China is belligerent in the China Seas making claims that are outrageous and affect uh, international commerce and our national security. We know that they are trying to change the rules of engagement economically so that they determine the rules based upon a government-controlled economy rather than an open economy, uh, which is against our national security interests. We know how belligerent they are against Taiwan, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. But I want to devote um, my time to what President Biden has said, that we are strongest when we conduct our foreign policy based upon our values. And China, in the recent decades, has just been moving in the wrong direction on universal human right values. And we could go through the entire list, and it's a long list. So I, I guess my question to you, how will you balance and strategize America's presence in China through your mission to advance universal values of the respect for individuals, religious freedom, human rights, and basic uh, beliefs that the universal community that believes in democracy looks to America's leadership as hope for the future? Senator, thank you very much for that question, and, and thank you for your decades of service to those issues, and I'm very well aware of that. I think you're right to suggest that as we think about our tools, our strengths, as we compete with China, it's our belief in human freedom, and human rights, in democracy, in the rule of law, in press freedoms, that really stands in opposition to an authoritarian dictatorship in Beijing. And so if we can marshal those strengths, and, and President Biden and his administration believe this is at the center of their foreign policy on Xinjiang, on Tibet, on Hong Kong, on the repression of the Chinese people, we can't just do that sometimes. Uh, we, can't, we cannot be silent if there are atrocities occurring, or in the case of Xinjiang, a genocide is occurring. We have to speak out. And you've seen the President, Secretary Blinken, and all of the officials have been very forthright about that since January 20th of this year. I think that will continue, and that will certainly be, if I am confirmed, a hallmark of what I try to do, speaking directly to the Chinese government in Beijing. I would ask also that you inform this committee as to how we can give you a stronger hand in dealing on these issues. 
Uh, we have passed sanction regime laws that have been used against oppressors in China, individual sanctions such as Bignitsky, as well as, uh, as sectorial sanctions have been used. Uh, and I think they have their effect. I, 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 I think they're extremely important. Uh, but we need to also think beyond that as to what we can do to give you what you need. The competitiveness bill that the chairman mentioned, I think, is going to be an extremely important part of our strategy against, uh, in standing up to China's oppression on the economic front. But we should also be looking at what we can do as a Congress to give you a stronger hand in China in dealing with these universal rights. So I, I would welcome your uh, advice uh, as to what we can do uh, to give you a, a stronger toolbox uh, in dealing with these issues. Thank you, Senator. And I would just suggest a couple of things, and I've spoken to the chairman and other members of the committee in my individual meetings about them. First and foremost, when the coronavirus mercifully ends, and when the restrictions on China, there's a three-week quarantine in China for visitors, at some point end, I hope that members of Congress from both parties will travel to China. And if I'm confirmed, I would like to help you to do that. I think they need to hear directly from our legislative branch on these issues. These will be difficult conversations uh, for you and for me with the Chinese leadership, but we have to have them. Secondly, I would encourage you respectfully to continue what you're doing, what this committee has done under the chairman's leadership and Senator Risch's leadership on a bipartisan basis to speak out and legislate when necessary and to sanction when necessary. Third and finally, President Biden was right on the issue of Xinjiang and the Uyghurs and the other Turkic Muslim peoples when he coalesced with Canada, the European Union, and the United Kingdom in multinational sanctions against specific Chinese individuals responsible for carrying out uh, the atrocities in, in Xinjiang. I think that can be helpful as well to expand the universe of, um, to expand our voice to work with other nations, perhaps through the NATO Parliamentary Assembly and your parliamentary exchanges with the Japanese, the Australians, and others. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Jones. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Burns, thank you for your prior service and your willingness to serve in this capacity. Uh, I agree with you that if uh, we act intelligently, uh, the U.S. in concert with our allies in the West, uh, we can compete with China. Uh, China, though, has advantages in terms of very long-term, very strategic thinking, authoritarian. Uh, they don't have the, the, the back and forth of uh, uh, elections, that type of thing. So they, they've, they have utilized that long-term strategic thinking, while the West literally has not done much to counter uh, their infiltration into our institutions, uh, their stealing of our intellectual property since their entry into the, the WTO. And just like you to comment on, on how do we, you know, how do we counter uh, what they've done and how we do that effectively? Senator, thank you. I think, it's, I think it's a central question. We have to have a strategy to match China's strategy. Um, I think that is beginning to develop over the last several years in the, the last three administrations, President Obama, President Trump, and President Biden. And as I said in my testimony, what distinguishes us and strengthens us is the fact that we have our alliance with Japan and our alliance with Australia and South Korea. And I've been involved in my past diplomatic career in intensive discussions with the Europeans. I think there are less 
uh, united, perhaps, in the European Union right now, but I sense that the Europeans are shifting to understand the threat, the threat to them, as well as to us and our Indo-Pacific allies. So I think operating on an allied basis is the most important thing we can do. And, and sometimes that means we form institutions. So the Quad is an institution that both parties can be proud of. Republican and Democratic presidents have supported the Quad. And now President Biden is operationalizing at the head of government level, which we hadn't done before. AUKUS, three countries coming together. We need to build the institutions that are permanent and that take this policy that we're discussing this morning into the 2030s because the competition with China will be multi-decade. Yeah, I, I, I do want to address specifically their infiltration into our university systems, the Confucius Institutes, um, their investment in things like medical journals. Uh, it really concerns me. You know, there is so much we don't know, for example, about the coronavirus, so much we don't know about COVID. Uh, I, I really do, and I, I really want to get your take on a, a real potential fault line when we start learning more. Uh, for example, the, about the origin theory. I mean, I, I, I don't know whether it was lab leak or whether it's natural origin. Um, people are starting to look into that. Obviously, there was a cover-up here for 18 months, uh, and as a result, gave China really good head start at, at bearing evidence. But back in uh, March of 2020, you participated in a virtual event at the Harvard's Kennedy Center, and you definitely were criticism, critis critical of China, uh, saying that this was you know, an army exercise. But at the same time, you're very critical of President Trump for calling it uh, the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. He said that we all know that's wrong. We all know that's racist. We all know that's not true. I guess I'm kind of wondering, how did you know? We still don't know. How are you so positive that this wasn't a lab leak theory? And have you changed your mind? Have you seen other evidence that would at least open up your mind to that prospect? Because if it is determined that it probably was not a natural origin, and this did leak from a lab in, in Wuhan, that will have very serious geopolitical repercussions between our, in our relationship with China. Thank you, Senator. I want to agree with you briefly on the issue of, um, of students and exchanges. We ought to welcome Chinese students into the United States, but student visas are not a right. They have to be earned. Our laws have to be observed. There are some Chinese student applicants who have ties to the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and China's intelligence services, and we should turn them down for visas. And we have to be clear about that. But we also have 375,000 students in our universities and secondary schools, in your state, in my state, at my university, and we are better off having them in this country to learn about our democracy. On the coronavirus, the, pro the problem here is with China. The Chinese government withheld information very clearly from their own people and the rest of the world for about a month in late December and January of 2020. I have consistently criticized the Chinese government for that, and they deserve to be criticized. And they've been stonewalling all of us around the world since January of 2020, including this week when they refused to act to, to work with the World Health Organization's new investigative body to answer the question that you rightfully asked. But, but again, I, my, it, my question is, are you still so certain that lab leak is off the table? Because you were very certain back then. You said it was, uh, you know, 
we all know that's not true. Have well, you changed your thinking on that? Because I think it's important if you're going to be ambassador to China that you have a, a more open mind on this than you exhibited back in March of 2020. So, Senator, um, I spoke often about this issue of U.S.-China relations at that period of time. And I believe that that quote from the Kennedy School event was directed to President Trump's use of the term Wuhan virus, which I did not think would be effective with the Chinese government or Chinese people or people around the world. It had nothing to do with the origins of the crisis of the pandemic. My position has been all along and continues this day, we need to investigate. We don't know where the, how this virus uh, originated for sure. There are multiple theories and the Chinese need to answer the questions. So I have never been a proponent of either one of these two options, but I think as President Biden has said, we need to push the Chinese to come clean about what happened. Thank you, well, thank you for that clarification, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ambassador Burns. Thank you for your willingness to continue to serve the United States. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, there have been reported cases of anomalous health incidents in China, also known as Havana syndrome cases. Have you been briefed on the reported cases in China? <clears throat> Senator, um, I, uh, I do not have a security clearance, so I've not been briefed in detail about what has happened to our mission personnel there, but I've had unclassified, open conversations with the State Department, and what I would say to you is, my own view, just as a private citizen, is that this is real. It's happening to our diplomats and other government personnel all around the world. And if confirmed, my obligation to you, and more particularly to the men and women of our mission in China, is to do everything under my power to protect them, working with the Secretary of State and all of our other officials. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I hope you will also request from the State Department um, once confirmed that classified uh, briefing that also includes how to encourage personnel to respond if they are affected and what to look for in terms of those attacks because to date there doesn't seem to be a consistent response and direction for personnel. Um, thank, thank you. You mentioned in your opening remarks and in the questioning about the increased Chinese influence in Eastern Europe and also Lithuania, which um, is one example of an Eastern European country that has taken a hard stance on China. In July, they actually became the first European country to allow a Taiwanese diplomatic presence using the island's name in the country. Can you talk about what you think the impact of Lithuania's stance is? We, we know it's uh, produced a response from China but will it have impact on other Eastern European countries and encourage them to take a hard look at what China's doing? Thank you. Uh, Lithuania has chosen its course, and every country has a right to define its relationship with Taiwan. Uh, and I'm, I'm proud that the Biden administration has stood up for Lithuania. And, you know, it's extraordinary. The Chinese government has launched an intensive intimidation campaign, economic intimidation uh, of Lithuania, and the Lithuanians have stood up and they've held their ground. They deserve our support, as Australia does. And Australia has been subjected to the same treatment. We have our own policy, the One China policy, which we should adhere to, our unofficial relationship with Taiwan, which has served us well. Every other country should have a right to determine what they want to do, and they shouldn't be bludgeoned and bullied by the Chinese leadership. Well, thank you very much. I couldn't agree more with that, and I think 
Lithuania deserves a lot of credit for a small country being willing to stand up in the way that they have. <clears throat> Excuse me. Earlier this month, NATO Secretary Jen Stoltenberg insisted that NATO must engage politically with China, but the alliance doesn't seem to see China as, as much of a threat as they do Russia. Does China view NATO in the same way? And what do you think NATO's strategy should be towards China? Thank you, Senator. It's been really interesting for me as a former ambassador to NATO to see how high on the agenda China has become over the last couple of years during President Trump's time and now President Biden's time. And, and the focus is right. I mean, certainly Russia is the immediate focus of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And especially considering Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland right up on the front lines as we try to contain Russian power. But I think the NATO countries led by a great Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, also understand China as the Belt Road Initiative is now in 16 countries in Eastern Europe. The Chinese are actively trying to separate countries in Eastern Europe from the European Union and NATO. And if you think about Chinese energy activities and military activities in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea, which is part of the NATO uh, littoral uh, geography, and think about the interests of Germany, of France, Italy, any of the NATO countries, they've got to be concerned by what's happening in Xinjiang province, in what's happened to Hong Kong, the threats against Taiwan, and the economic practices of, uh, of China. My last point would be, if we can coalesce with the European Union, the United States and Japan on some of the economic issues, we're well more than 60% of GDP. It's real leverage. So Europe has to be part of this strategy, and I credit the Secretary General. I credit Ambassador K. Bailey Hutchison, uh, who was our great American ambassador under President Trump. She pushed this issue, and she was right to do that. And do you think China has become concerned about NATO's increasing um, interest in what China is doing in Europe? The reason or are I, they ignoring that? I don't think they're ignoring it, Senator. I mean, the reason I use the term China's not an Olympian power in my statement, and I meant it specifically, they have enormous strengths. They have very few friends. They have no real allies. And think of the strategic advantage we have with our 29 allies in Canada, the Europeans in NATO, and our multiple treaty allies in the Indo-Pacific. It is our comparative advantage, and I think President Biden has been working overtime with Secretary Blinken to reach out to that, the allies both in NATO and the Indo-Pacific to say we need to be working together strategically on China. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, let me just quickly echo Senator Shaheen's comments about Lithuania. Uh, Lithuania and, and how we respond to help it is a test for the West. Because when a country stands up against China and then faces the enormous economic consequences that China is creating against Lithuanian businesses by denying them supply chain opportunities, which is a wake-up call for the world, uh, I think uh, it's incredibly important that we stand by Lithuania extremely strongly. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I, I wish to associate myself with the comments of the chairman and the ranking member at the beginning of this hearing. Uh, it's good to see you, Ambassador, and, and very deeply appreciate your willingness to serve once again uh, your country at a critical time. Um, we all know China's ambition. They've described what it is. They seek to replace us as the global leader. Um, the um, 
the prospect of a global order led by China is one which is troubling for many reasons. We can see what that might look like based upon what they're doing even now, uh, censoring their media, blacking out social media in their country, uh, stealing intellectual property from us and from others, uh, reneging on treaties and promises they've made, repressing uh, religion and people of faith, monitoring uh, their own citizens and assigning social grades based upon their loyalty to the uh, Chinese regime, uh, the communist regime, uh, oppressing minorities of all kinds, and of course, committing genocide. We say that quickly, but genocide, uh, eliminating a people, enslaving a people as they are, all these things suggest that a global order led by China would be uh, something which the world could not possibly endure. Um, there was probably a time uh, a decade or so ago when if you were the ambassador to China, you could go in and, and uh, pound your fist on the table and, and they would take note and perhaps change course on some of the things we care most about because they were worried about their access to the U.S. market. Is, is that true today? Can, can we sort of tell China what to do and do they respond um, uh, or, or are, are we no longer in that position? Senator, thank you, and I appreciate the conversation we had in your office two weeks ago about all these issues. Um, I think our relationship is fundamentally different now than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and I've spoken to most of the former American ambassadors about this, and we're in an entirely new age uh, where we've got to have channels of communication to work with the Chinese. First of all, we want to mitigate the danger of an accidental conflict. We want to maintain the peace. But we also want to have clear messaging in, and I think multiple channels make sense. If confirmed, I'll be on point for the country and the government um, in Beijing talking directly to the Chinese. I think it's very important for members to travel there, members of Congress, and ultimately most important for the president uh, to have direct conversations as, as he is seeking to do. He's had phone conversations with President Xi Jinping, but these are difficult conversations, and you've seen the aggressiveness of the Chinese officials. You've seen the nationalism, you've seen the wolf warrior diplomacy. It's part of the fabric of what we're dealing with now. And, and my final point, Senator, would be to say, we're a strong country. We should be confident of our values and our interests, and we can stand up to the Chinese, but our allies and partners can help to do that so that there's real weight and leverage, and I do think that's the focus. What is your sense of the of the commitment of our allies to that to that effort? Uh, we've spoken already this morning about uh, about NATO and our our friends and allies there. Perhaps Germany is not quite as committed as let's say Lithuania, uh, but uh, but as you look at, at our allies, um, are we are we advancing uh, in terms of our our mutual uh, efforts, or is there some retreat on the part of uh, of key allies? I don't see retreat. Certainly, I think we're seeing a stiffening of the resolve of Japan, which is so important for us. Australia, rock solid on these issues. Uh, India, not an ally, not a treaty ally, but a strategic military partner in the Bay of Bengal and the Western Pacific, very important for us. Europe is, is different. There's so many countries with different views. Of course, we're waiting for the formation of the German government, so we'll have to wait and to see what the Social Democrats and the Greens do. But I would note that the Greens uh, were very critical of China during the recent campaign uh, in Germany. And certainly President Macron has spoken out um, about the dangers of China in the Indo-Pacific. And France is unique among the European powers because it is an Indo-Pacific country as well. 
Uh, and so I, I think we've got to work both the North Atlantic Alliance, the European Union, but especially our Indo-Pacific allies to be successful. There are some who, who look at, at China and say it's, it's a juggernaut. There's no way to slow it down. It's on a course that uh, is unstoppable. Uh, do you see it that way? Uh, is there a way of dissuading China from a, a, a course uh, as malevolent as what we're seeing today? Do they have some fundamental weaknesses uh, that the rest of the world uh, recognizes and, and can, uh, can get them to divert from the course they're on? It's certainly a, yours is certainly a key analytical question. And none of us can deny the extraordinary growth in the power of China militarily, technologically, economically, and politically over the last 30 to 40 years. But we shouldn't, under, uh, we shouldn't exaggerate that power. I said in my statement, China has significant demographic challenges over the next few decades. It has angered nearly all the countries on its border by being overly aggressive and overly acquisitive. Think of the South China Sea and the outrageous uh, attempts by the Chinese government to run roughshod over the Law of the Sea Treaty and the legal obligations uh, that China is ignoring. Think of the East China Sea and their um, attempt to intimidate, but they have not succeeded, our ally Japan, and think of Taiwan. And so I think the Chinese have, um, by being so aggressive, they've now stirred up a lot of opposition to them. And I think we ought not to exaggerate their strengths or underestimate the strengths of the United States. What we need is self-confidence, that the United States is a strong country. And I do think our values are the strongest part uh, of, our, um, of our strategy towards, towards China. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member. Um, thank you, Ambassador Burns, for uh, your willingness to continue your service overseas. Uh, you are the right nominee at the right moment for what is an absolutely critical relationship for the 21st century. And I think in your opening statement, you laid out uh, wisely um, the challenges that are before us. And so I, I am particularly pleased, um, given your deep experience in the Foreign Service as Ambassador to Greece and to NATO, um, your work uh, leading the Aspen Strategy Group, um, through which I've gotten to see your remarkable talents of both strategic insight and interpersonal diplomacy. Um, and my thanks to Libby, um, to the support you've gotten from your spouse and your family across a long career in service. Um, just a few questions, if I might, because um, I, I know there are many others who have questions. Um, but first, I, I think part of what you bring to this is an understanding of how to effectively deploy that key strategic advantage of allies and partners. Uh, and I think you correctly point out that China's greatest current global weakness is the absence of any real partners or allies. So given your experience uh, as ambassador, uh, first to Greece and then later to NATO, um, how do you envision the US-Europe transatlantic alliance responding um, to the strategic uh, competition with China, the values competition, um, and how do you think you can best play a role in engaging our allies in the Indo-Pacific and in Europe? Senator, thank you very much for those comments and, and for your question. In my entire diplomatic career, probably the, the lesson I learned most, most vividly, was 9-11. When I was a very new ambassador, I was in my 12th day, and we were hit hard, 3,000 people dead in the United States. And we couldn't reach the Pentagon, the White House, and the State Department because they'd all been evacuated. But my phone started to ring at NATO headquarters. And it was the Canadian ambassador, David Wright, 
and the German ambassador and the Italian and French ambassadors, we're with you, we want to invoke Article 5. That's the bond. We invoked Article 5 the next day. And that's the bond we have in our allies. And it's based in part on strategic interests that we have in common, but it's fundamentally based on values and belief in democracy and human rights. And that's the coalition that we need to form vis-a-vis -vis China. And I credit President Biden when he came to office from his inaugural speech to his first speech in the State Department to his G7 and NATO and EU meetings, and you know this very well, uh, Senator, because you're so close to him, he has been consistent in saying we're going to succeed most if we're with our allies. And Secretary Blinken has been working tirelessly on this. And I think it is going to be, frankly, most challenging perhaps in Europe. It's not the fault of the Europeans, but it's a big group of countries and a multiplicity of views. NATO is, in one way, the right institution for certain issues, and we're working those there, but the European Union on others. And I would just say, and we had a chance to talk about this this morning together, we need to be together on human rights. We need to stand up together, Europeans and Americans, on the Uyghur issue, on Tibet, on Hong Kong, and on Taiwan. And we need to be together on trade because both of us are victims of Chinese unfair trade practices. And think of the power of the EU, the US, perhaps Japan working together. I think that's part of the strategy that we have to operate. And thank you, Ambassador. I, I do think uh, we're in an era uh, where concerns about the digital world uh, and the, the role of the individual in a digital age uh, are also at the forefront. Uh, I'm very concerned about the way in which China has developed and deployed um, the technology to surveil and to censor um, to even control its own population and actions they've taken to export um, not just that technology but that attitude to other uh, countries around the world. How do you think we can best work with global partners um, to offer an alternative vision in which uh, digital technologies serve democratic values and then to embed that uh, in a common trade framework uh, with the values partners you were just referencing? Thank you, Senator. Um, this is also a central question. And, and President Biden, from his inaugural speech on, has been talking about the need for democracies to recognize the threat from the authoritarian world. And that's principally the People's Republic of China and Russia and others around the world. And to see the pernicious use of tech, misuse of technology to repress their own citizens and then to try to export that technology in countries where there's a struggle between democratic small d democratic forces and, um, and authoritarian forces, we've got to be operating all across the world to help the democratic forces and to help blunt this technological impact. I think it's a very important issue. I know the State Department and Secretary Blinken are seized by it. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Ambassador. I look forward to supporting your nomination and working closely with you. I think better understanding China, better communicating with China about our risks and opportunities is an important and critical role, but also clearly advocating for America's interests and values is an essential role. And I think you'll be an excellent ambassador. I look forward to supporting your nomination. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, ambassador Burns, welcome to the committee. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party cannot be trusted. Uh, the world has seen China's brutality, deception, illegal activities. We've seen China cover up, spread disinformation about the coronavirus. We've seen China destroy Hong Kong's autonomy. We've seen them engage in unlawful military activities in the South China Sea. 
seen China steal American intellectual property, commit terrible human rights abuses. Um, now, these to me are actions of a dangerous and authoritarian regime. It's not a nation, it's not a nation committed uh, to the rule of law, to free markets, to protecting the rights of people. It's clear the United States and the international community must hold China accountable for its increasingly dangerous behavior. So just recently, the uh, CIA director Bill Burns stated that China presents the greatest challenge to U.S. interests and to international order, close quote. He also announced the creation of a new China mission center to, quote, strengthen our collective work on the most important geopolitical threat that we face in the 21st century, which is an increasingly adversarial Chinese government. Uh, do you concur and believe that China's increasingly adversarial government is the most important geopolitical threat in, that the United States faces in the 21st century? Thank you, Senator. I agree with my longtime friend and Foreign Service colleague, Director Bill Burns. I agree with the statement he made. I noticed it. I read his statement. Um, he and I grew up in a, the first 10 years of our career were the end of the Cold War when the Soviet Union was the greatest threat. There's no question in the 21st century, given Chinese power, and we've talked about this morning, China's the greatest threat to the security of our country and of the democratic world. Thank you. The, um, I want to ask you about the U.S.-China Phase 1 agreement. Remember, in January of 2020, the United States and China signed a Phase 1 trade agreement. Uh, China committed to buy $468 billion of U.S. goods, energy, agriculture, and services over a two-year period of time. They, they really do, a, China appears to be failing to comply to this agreement. Reports indicate that China's purchases have fallen far short for both 2020 and 2021. Do you believe China is committed to abiding by its promises under this agreement, and what are options available to us to ensure that China does fulfill the terms of the agreement? Thank you, Senator. Um, this is going to be a contentious issue, and it has been for a long time between our two countries. Um, I think you know that the, the U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Catherine Tai gave a speech here in Washington two and a half weeks ago, and she was very forthright in saying, uh, I'll just summarize which, the, her main point, saying that she would um, talk to her Chinese counterpart about that phase one deal and about the performance of the Chinese government in meeting or not meeting its commitments. And I think she was right to suggest that that has to be the first order of business on trade with China. And obviously, we in the United States need to make investments in our own economy to strengthen it, which the President and Congress are working on. Um, and we have to overcome the ravages of COVID-19 before we can probably get on to bigger initiatives, but I think she was right to start there, hold China to account for what it promised President Trump. And uh, I think most uh, observers and experts would say they have not fulfilled their obligations. In addition to goods and energy and agriculture products, there's also uh, intellectual property obligations under this U.S.-China uh, Phase One agreement. What steps can we take to ensure that China fully implements and complies with the intellectual property commitment? That's a key issue because it gets to the systemic violations of China's WTO commitments. I named some of them in my statement. Intellectual property theft, dumping, state subsidies, unfair labor practices. So when we talk to the Chinese about trade, part of it is our two-way $559 billion trade relationship in, in goods and then more in services. Part of it is getting at these systemic problems that I think every recent president has wrestled the Chinese on. 
my, my, for my final question, earlier this year, China and Iran signed a, a memorandum of understanding in which China would invest as much as $400 billion in Iran over the next uh, 25 years. Last month, Iran was accepted as a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. China's long been importing Iranian oil uh, in uh, contravention of U.S. sanctions on Iran. Uh, sanctioned Iranian airlines continue to fly uh, to China. Not simply a matter of a few Chinese companies violating U.S. law. There's a, lo a lot going on here. It appears to be a strategic decision by the Chinese government to allow these violations to take place. What's your assessment of the current relationship between China uh, and Iran? This is a very serious issue. As you portray it, and you're right, this is a closer relationship than China and Iran had, say, when I was the Iran negotiator for Secretary Condoleezza Rice. When China joined us, in three UN Security Council sanctions resolutions, chapter seven against the Iranians in 2006, seven, and eight. And now they have a closer relationship. I think what we ought to do, and we will do, I'm sure, and the President Biden's administration talked to the Chinese directly about this, and obviously um, hold the Chinese to account to abide by every uh, UN Security Council sanctions resolution that prohibits most of this activity. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for your long service to the nation, for your willingness to continue in a very difficult but critical post. Um, when uh, the Obama administration negotiated the Paris Accords, it was critical that they secure commitments from the fastest growing economies, which happened to be the fastest growing polluters. Um, to make significant commitments. Uh, of course, India and China are at the top of this list. We lost four years uh, in holding uh, both of those nations to their commitments. Um, and so you and this administration are going to be making up for lost time. India is arguably, you know, in the neighborhood of being able to um, make their commitment at Paris. China is not. In fact, a recent report found that Chinese emissions in 2019 were so big that they were larger than that of the entire developed world as a whole. Um, and so I'd be interested to hear from you, um, you know, what you believe are the commitments that can be realistically made by the Chinese, especially in the short term as we get ready for COP26, uh, and the extent to which our ability to pass significant climate legislation will enable you to be a more forceful interlocutor with the Chinese on questions of climate. Thank you, Senator. A, a central, another central question, and it, it does, this is the side of the relationship where we have to engage China and seek cooperation if it's possible. And this makes this relationship so difficult because we're competing and we're engaging at the same time. Climate is perhaps the signature issue on the cooperation side. And, um, Obviously, we, President Obama was able to work with President Xi Jinping back in 2015. That was positive. Secret, former Secretary John Kerry is now working tirelessly on this issue. And China, as I understand China's current position, its, its emissions will not begin to diminish until 2030. And most climate experts, if not all, think that's not sustainable. That China meet, needs to make a greater effort to diminish its carbon emissions before 2030. And also they say they'll be carbon neutral by 2060. It's gotta be well before that. Because you're right, China is by far the largest emitter of carbon in the world today. 
by a long mile past the United States and any other country. And so they, they have an obligation to the rest of us, beginning at COP26 and going on. This will be a major issue in our relationship. I want to ask you second about uh, your assessment of the scope and breadth of Chinese diplomacy today. Um, there was a sort of flurry of attention uh, to um, a milestone in 2019 where China surpassed the United States with respect to the number of diplomatic posts it has around the world. Uh, I was in uh, Ireland that same year where there was an important telecommunications tender and we were hearing stories about a surge of diplomats being sent to the embassy in Dublin. Meanwhile, we had you know, one very nice and capable military attache who was the beginning and end of our diplomatic team working uh, on behalf of U.S. companies for this tender. Um, it seems as if uh, China is, has diplomatic reach in new places and has an ability to be flexible and nimble in a way that we do not. One of the things that I believe we should be engaging in is more subnational diplomacy, using our state leaders and our local leaders to engage all around the world um, on behalf of the United States, something that China does fairly well. Um, just a quick assessment from you as to uh, the state of Chinese uh, diplomatic efforts around the world, how it's changed over the past five or 10 years, and any recommendations that you might give to this committee as we seek to empower U.S. diplomacy to compete with China? Thank you, Senator. The Chinese have sought to become the most active in their minds and most powerful diplomatic force in the world for my entire career. Until a couple of years ago, the United States had more embassies and consulates in the world than any country. Uh, as of last autumn, China had 275 embassies and consulates and the United States 273. Is it meaningful? Yes. It means we have to compete. We're competing militarily. We're competing economically. We've got to compete diplomatically. Um, I can assure you we have an outstanding foreign service. I've gotten to know over the last couple of months uh, the men and women of the China desk in our East Asia Bureau. They're superb experts. And we do need to make a commitment, as the President and Secretary Blinken are doing, to modernize, strengthen our foreign service and our civil service. And that's part of our diplomatic power. And finally, Senator, I think you're right. Diplomacy is not just for people like me, State Department diplomats. We need multiple channels to create the coalitions and friendships that can limit China. And that can be state governors and legislatures and NGOs subnational actors, as you call them. And, and I think we've got to have an all-country embrace of connecting with our allies to support our interests vis-a-vis -vis China. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Burns, nice to have you here today. I'd like to talk with you about China's strategy to dominate the 21st century. We just learned over the weekend that China has deployed for the first time what's known as a hypersonic glide missile. Uh, as the Financial Times reported, and I'm going to quote, China tested a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile in August that circled the globe before speeding toward its target, demonstrating an advanced space capability that caught U.S. intelligence by surprise. If China deployed hypersonic glide vehicles, this would enable China to circumvent U.S. ballistic missile defenses and strike the U.S. homeland without warning. Ambassador Burns, this new military capability is deeply worrisome. But I believe the even bigger alarm is continued complacency about China 
complacency that we still see far too much in the national security establishment here in America. We see this when China probes and menaces our democratic ally, Taiwan, and the administration responds with silence or with presidential talk about a so-called Taiwan agreement that doesn't exist. Xi Jinping has made clear that the Chinese Communist Party has a plan for China to dominate the world diplomatically, economically, technologically, and militarily. Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party want to achieve dominance and displace the United States by 2049, the 100-year anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. And they're certainly locking in every advantage that they can along the way. President Trump awakened our nation to the Chinese threat and the Biden administration has inherited a very strong China strategy, one that I helped to craft and implement when I served as U.S. Ambassador to Japan. As part of the China strategy, the Trump administration also rightly determined that China is engaged in genocide and crimes against humanity with the Uyghur population and other Muslims that live in the Xinjiang province. I worry that the Biden administration will try to strike some sort of naive grand bargain on climate or other issues with China that effectively might erase the strong position that we have with China today. Such a naive deal could significantly weaken our energy independence. Meanwhile, China will continue to burn more coal and emit more greenhouse gases than all of the developed world combined, with an unenforceable pledge to reduce their carbon footprint at some undetermined time in the future. Ambassador Burns, that's my view of what's at stake strategically, but let's focus on China's immediate threat with respect to Taiwan. It's clear that the Chinese Communist Party is stepping up its military posture in the Taiwan Strait. The world's alarmed, and Taiwan could be the first domino to fall in the Indo-Pacific. Ambassador, what's your view on the Taiwan issue, and should the United States revisit the issue of strategic ambiguity with respect to Taiwan? Senator, thank you, and thank you for your service as a U.S. Ambassador to Japan. Um, I agree with you that China's our strongest, I would say most dangerous competitor, in the world, President Biden has followed a very tough-minded policy against China. I counted up yesterday at least 15 sanctions or executive orders limiting the ability of the Chinese government to be influential around the world or in our own society. So I think there's been, under President Obama, President Trump, now President Biden, an increasing emphasis on what we need to do to limit China. And President Biden's policy is very tough and very strong. On Taiwan, we need to do multiple things. We need to strengthen our commitment to Taiwan's security under the Taiwan Relations Act. The Biden administration proposed the sale of, of, A1, of A109A6 howitzers this past spring, a $750 million deal that would help the Taiwan uh, authorities to defend themselves. There's substantial uh, leverage in the Taiwan Relations Act available to the executive and legislative branches to continue to provide arms sales for defensive purposes, defense articles and services to Taiwan. And maybe the most important thing we can do is maintain a strong American military deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. You were part of that as ambassador. Uh, our alliance with Japan, our alliance with the Republic of Korea, our alliance with Australia, the presence of our Navy and Air Force at Anderson Air Force Base in Guam, our rotational deployments, of course, our deployments through the international waters of the South China Sea. This is all-encompassing strategy designed to support our side and to strengthen our ability 
uh, to help Taiwan defend itself. I agree with you on our military strategy and our posture. We need to maintain it. We need to strengthen it. I, I am interested still, though, in your view on whether we should revisit our posture of strategic ambiguity, how we talk about the Taiwan situation. This is a, it's an important question. My own view is that we're better off and will be more effective in staying with the one China policy uh, of the last four decades. We recognize the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China. And yet we have unofficial relations with Taiwan and we have under the Taiwan Relations Act the ability, in fact the imperative, of helping Taiwan to defend itself. Every president, Republican and Democrat, has followed that policy in, in the face of the Chinese buildup, and they're more aggressive now. That is the best way for us to strengthen the ability of Taiwan to defend itself. My time has come to a close. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Absolutely. Uh, Ambassador Burns, I'm sitting in while Senator Menendez votes, and it's my turn in the order. So uh, congratulations to you. You're a wonderful public servant. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about assumptions. So uh, pre-2000, uh, China had to sort of make a case to the United States every year to be granted most favored nation status. And it was, a, it was an annual decision that the president would make. And China, that, that annual decision provided a forum for discussions about human rights issues and, and such. Uh, in 2000, Congress granted China uh, permanent normal trade relations status, which paved their path to becoming a member of the WTO. And so we no longer have that annual determination and opportunity. And I think possibly we've lost some focus on some of the human rights and other issues for that reason. The decision was made because of a belief that if China was part of the WTO, they would conform themselves to global trade rules. Um, and I think everyone, whatever their thought at the time, would say that China's behavior has been disappointing, that they haven't done what we hoped. I'm curious, do, do you think that was a mistake for us to grant China legal permanent trade relations in 2000? Thank you, Senator Kane. Um, I was not involved in U.S.-China relations at that time. I was focused on Greece and NATO in those years. Um, and of course, it's always perilous to be a Monday morning quarterback and sit in judgment of people I really admire. But personally, uh, the assumptions that many made about China in those years turned out not to be accurate. China took advantage of its presence in the WTO as a so-called developing country. China then didn't meet its obligations under the WTO. And who suffered? American workers and American businesses. And you and I have met with a lot of American businesses who had their IP ripped off by the Chinese and made their, made their business decisions very difficult. So I do think at this point in 2021, I hope there will be bipartisan support for a very aggressive American policy to hold China to account. And if you read Ambassador Tai's speech of two and a half weeks ago, Ambassador Catherine Tai's speech, the US trade rep, she was very clear about her determination on behalf of the president to protect American workers and protect American businesses. And I think that has to be the focus of our efforts right now. Thank you for that answer. Uh, some of my Republican colleagues actually have filed a bill to to undo the legal permanent trade relations that we accorded China 21 years ago. It, it might be hard to get the genie back in the bottle because supply chains and others have sort of 
reformed and recombined to reflect the new reality. But um, I, th I think with the best of intentions, there were a lot of optimism and hopes about China. Members of both parties, presidents of both parties that have proven to be wrong. Uh, and we have to be willing, as, as we were with the Competitiveness Act we recently passed, to lean much more forward in the relationship. Here's another assumption, and you've touched on it in your, um, in your discussion. The, the United States has a wonderful network of allies, but China really doesn't. China really doesn't. Um, and we see this again and again. I, I think it's, it's a statement that is actually true. But here's one, something I worry about. When I see China and Russia doing joint naval exercises in the Straits of Japan, as they recently did, or, or other joint military exercises, they, they've done joint military exercises with Iran uh, in the Persian Gulf, um, I start to worry a little bit about an assumption that we've long made in national security, thinking that China and Russia will never be but too cooperative. They seem to be combining frequently now um, they are very different countries, but they both are authoritarian nations that don't respect democratic norms and institutions and actually believe, believe democracy is a, is a dying governmental model. How worried should the United States be about increasing cooperation between China and Russia, especially on military matters? It's a very, um, it's a reality. And I think a lot of us, maybe 10, 20 years ago, wouldn't have not, would not have anticipated that China and Russia would begin to work together strategically, but they are. All the more reason why we need to deepen our own alliances and partnerships. Um, I'd say this, Senator, and this is just speculative. I spent five years of my career at the White House on Soviet and Russian affairs. My numbers may be a little bit off, but I think there are six or seven million Russians living east of the Ural Mountains in that vast expanse. And there are three or 400 million Chinese living below them. The Russians are going to have to worry long-term about economic domination of Russia by China. And in response to what Senator Risch asked me, the Russians ought to be worried about a Chinese nuclear weapons buildup in the western part of China, about the hypersonic missile that Senator Haggerty, a test that Senator Haggerty just raised, and the fact that China is completely unconstrained of the five permanent nuclear powers of the Security Council. It's the only one that refuses to be part of any arms control regime. We've been part of one for 60 years since the Test Ban Treaty of 1963. And so obviously that's going to be a focus for all of us, I would say, including the Russians going forward. Uh, thank you. I've, I'm over my time. I believe Senator Young by WebEx is next up. Yes, uh, Senator Kane, Chairman, thank you so much. Um, uh, yes, uh, Mr. Burns, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I just hopped on, Ambassador, but uh, congratulations on your nomination and thank you for your years of distinguished service. Uh, this week, we've seen public reporting suggesting that China successfully tested a nuclear-capable capable hypersonic missile. Earlier this summer, we saw additional reporting uh, indicating that China had dramatically increased the size and scope of its nuclear arsenal. These reports have evoked fears of a new Cold War with China. These nuclear weapons concerns come amid rapidly escalating tensions over Taiwan. Our strategic competition, of course, is nothing new, but I'm concerned with the growing risks of miscommunication or misinterpretation of our actions. Uh, 
in your view, sir, what's motivating these sorts of provocative actions from Beijing? Senator Young, thank you, and thank you for your leadership on the innovation, strategic innovation bill that is so important to the future of our country. I think you're right to focus on this issue. Part of what we will need to do in the U.S.-China relationship is mitigate the possibility of an accidental conflict and to maintain the peace between our two countries and in the region. And that, that will require our military leadership, the civilian leadership of the Defense Department, the State Department, and the White House to have effective communication channels into the Chinese leadership. And of course, every administration has wanted to do this uh, and has worked on it, but we need to work on it um, very intensively because at all costs, we want to compete with China, but we don't want to find ourselves, in the words of um, my Harvard colleague Joe Nye, being sleepwalkers into a conflict with China. So part of the job of an American ambassador to China, if I'm confirmed, will be to uh, work with my colleagues in the US government to make sure we have those effective communications channels uh, with the Chinese leadership. And finally, Senator, I just say to you, I completely agree with you. We should all be concerned by the nuclear buildup in China. And that has to be a concern for allied nations as well as the United States. Uh, well, thank you. I, I, um, I wish you luck if there's any way Congress can be constructive in, in, in helping open up those channels of communication, whether it's through visits uh, to the country, uh, expressing our collective desire uh, to, uh, to make sure that uh, we're talking and we, we avoid any uh, scenarios that uh, our leadership and, and our peoples would regret. Uh, I am, uh, en enlist me in the cause, sir. Um, Thank you. My state of Indiana, Ambassador, is the most manufacturing intensive state in the United States, and our businesses rely on a diversified supply chain and market access. Over the years, China has used localization requirements, uh, intellectual property theft, and forced transfer of data to hamstring our enterprises that are dependent on technology. I firmly believe the United States should advocate for integrity in digital trade provisions of our trade agreements. This includes holding bad actors accountable, especially communist China. I'm currently working on a resolution to solidify the US commitment to high standard digital trade principles. If confirmed, how will you address continued action by China that purposefully causes harm to American businesses, knowing that you'll need to coordinate with Ambassador Tai on this. Senator, thank you. And in my, in my, my opening statement, I focused on this issue of trade uh, because of the enormous damage to your state and every other state to our workers and to our businesses. This is a high priority for the Biden administration and obviously if confirmed, I'll be working very intensively on this issue with the White House, with the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department, and of course, principally with Ambassador Tai and her colleagues. And Ambassador, accept my apologies if you discuss this in, in uh, your opening statement, but uh, could you just explain why actions like IP theft and, and uh, data localization requirements are issues of national security, not just uh, economic issues. In thinking about this job, I've been consulting with a lot of 
experts on China across the country, and it's really been interesting to hear that I think the great majority of them would say that the focal point, the most important part of our competition with China will be on economics and, and technology in the future. We're going to have a military competition for power, which we had with the Soviets in the old Cold War. What distinguishes our competition with China, which, make, which makes it unlike the old Cold War, is the fact that they seek dominance on technology, on AI, machine learning, quantum sciences, biotechnology. They seek to militarize those technologies. That may be the central focus of the competition. So therefore, we in the executive branch and you in Congress need to unite on a bipartisan basis and be fundamentally focused on it. Thank you. And I, and I would say, Ambassador, uh, uh, thank you for bringing up my legislation. Uh, that is the, the purpose to address uh, this threat. Tech, technology threat, uh, economic threat uh, uh, that uh, uh, China poses uh, to us, uh, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. So uh, I hope that broadly bipartisan legislation passes before year's end. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you for your leadership. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, congratulations, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you for your long service uh, to this country uh, and to your family. Um, just picking up uh, on some of the points Senator Young made, and I was pleased to hear you mention in your opening remarks uh, the issue of uh, China's sy systematic theft of intellectual uh, property. Uh, that's why Senator Sass and I uh, teamed up and we passed a bipartisan bill here in the Senate uh, called Protecting American Intellectual Property Act. It's actually incorporated in the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which, as you know, passed the Senate uh, and is pending in the House. And the whole idea is that U.S. companies uh, that are victimized by intellectual property theft don't have just sole recourse in the United States court. Um, and so in those situations where we're not talking about garden variety, you know, trademark, um, you know, violations, uh, but in fact, systematic theft of U.S. strategic technology and other cutting-edge technologies, the U.S. government would weigh in and be authorized to impose economic sanctions and penalties. Um, this was a measure supported by the previous administration, I think also by the current uh, administration. I want to flag that because I look forward to working with you uh, as we get that through the congressional uh, process, because there has to be a price to pay. Um, and when you're talking about the Chinese government weighing in and being part of this theft, uh, you can't leave it simply to the court system uh, to defend American uh, companies. Um, similarly, I believe uh, China's got to be paying a higher price for its malign actions and its violation of uh, international uh, agreements. Um, and we've seen a, a gross violation of those agreements in the case of Hong Kong. Uh, where China has cracked down uh, on uh, democracy. Uh, Senator Toomey and I passed legislation um, last year uh, called the Hong Kong Autonomy Act. It's in part of the law now. Uh, this administration has used it to apply sanctions to 24 individuals who are complicit in cracking down on democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, we'd like to see them identify some of the, the banks and financial institutions that are aiding and abetting that activity because the sanctions also apply to them. But my, my broader question here relates to how we 
raise the price China's got to pay for these malign actions. Uh, yes, we've got to make sure we strengthen our own position, both at home and around the world, certainly with our allies, uh, certainly provide Taiwan with more of the means to defend itself. But how can we raise the cost to China of the kind of actions they've taken in Hong Kong? And do you agree that they've, they've felt the pain at all of international response, for example, in Hong Kong? Is there more we can be doing? Senator, thank you very much, and thank you for authoring that legislation. I do think it was particularly effective to sanction specific individuals in Hong Kong who are responsible for the repression of the people of Hong Kong, and that's similar to the Biden administration sanctions on, on those individuals in Xinjiang province who did the same. I do think that we are stronger if we can create global alliances on all of these issues. So encouraging the European Union to be with us, not just in condemning human rights violations, but sanctioning, and that was the case. They were with us in sanctions in, on Xinjiang. And I think Hong Kong's particularly important. I mentioned earlier in the testimony, I was with Secretary Albright in Hong Kong on the day of the handover, June 30, 1997. And all of us with Secretary Albright remember the specific commitments China made, and it's reneged on all of them. So, this is not just a U.S. concern, it has to be a global concern. And I do think one of the changes President Biden has brought to our strategic policy towards China is to emphasize our allies and partners on this issue as well as the others that we've been talking about. I appreciate that. I think you have to have that multiplier effect uh, in order to make uh, these sanctions ultimately effective, um, if not in reversing the actions that China has taken, letting them know that they will pay a higher price for similar actions uh, going uh, forward. Uh, just in, in conclusion, um, you're obviously going to be our ambassador to China and talking about these important issues between our two countries, but how important is it that we um, strengthen ourselves here at home, uh, both in terms of modernizing our infrastructure and trying to address the depolarization that we face uh, in this country? It may be the most important thing we can do, is to invest in our technological future as the Senate is doing with your strategic innovation bill, which I very strongly, that the administration very strongly supported, and I do too. And it's to prepare ourselves to strengthen, to have a clean energy future, strengthen our technology base, be funding, I would hope, our universities and research institutions, because that's where the cutting edge technology is happening. Supporting our businesses, because they're the ones who make America powerful economically, in, in large part. And so that strategy is probably the most important thing we can do to stand up to the China challenge. Over the next 20 to 30 years, I do think this is going to be a long-term challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Rounds. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Burns, first of all, let me just begin by saying thank you for the time that you spent with us uh, last evening. Uh, it is appreciated, and uh, I most certainly enjoyed the conversation. As you know, I sit on the Senate Armed Services Committee and its Strategic Forces Subcommittee. I'd be very interested in your thoughts on China's nuclear stockpile and its expanding capabilities, specifically with regard to our challenge right now here within uh, the discussions going on that some of our members think it's okay if we were to perhaps not modernize our own triad. In fact, they question whether anybody really cares whether we have a triad or not. Uh, 
China, and this is on an unclassified level, they've been increasing their stockpile. Um, some folks don't think that we need to be improving and upgrading and modernizing our own nuclear triad. I think China is, is aggressively growing their own, and I think this is, is a critical part of their foreign policy strategy. And, and I think it's uh, one way in which the PRC, in terms of their diplomatic efforts, uses it as a hammer when they deal with other countries. Could you share a little bit about how you see that impacting your ability to negotiate uh, with the PRC once you are there? Senator, thank you, and, and thank you for the conversation we had uh, in your office last evening. And as I explained to you, one of the curiosities of coming up for confirmation as a private citizen is that, you know, quite properly, I don't have access to classified information. So in this realm, and Senator Haggerty asked me about it as well, I'm a limit, little bit limited by not having that access, but I will say this. Based on the press reports, we should all be concerned by the buildup of China's nuclear forces in the western part of China. And then many members have asked me about these press reports of these novel delivery systems, these hypersonic systems. What I think has to bother all of us is the attitude of the Chinese government. They don't believe that they should be constrained in any way, shape, or form by arms control. The United States submits to that. Russia submits to that, uh, at least did in the past. Our other nuclear allies, the United Kingdom and France do, and so I think it's gonna be very important. I know the Trump administration made an effort to do this and was right to do it, to push the Chinese to think about their obligations. And I think it's very important that we do that on a bipartisan basis. But certainly these are troubling developments. I said earlier, Senator, the Chinese have been saying for decades that they would like to have a minimum nuclear deterrence. Uh, and they seem to be quite rapidly moving away uh, from that older policy of the Chinese government. Thank you. Let me just continue down that line a little bit. It's more than simply nuclear development. There's also the issue of artificial intelligence. They will be a key player with regard to the deployment of artificial intelligence, not just in regard to national defense issues, but in uh, all areas of technology. We've got before us the opportunity, and I think the uh, National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence made major requests to Congress to fund artificial intelligence uh, activity and, and uh, opportunities. Not real expensive, but clearly something that, that uh, it's not just the United States, but China is working on. Could you talk about the need for the United States to continue to take a very active role in the most technologically advanced fields, including artificial intelligence, in order to maintain our leadership role, not just with regard to defense, but with regard to trade as well? Thank you, Senator. Um, uh, two years ago, I organized a meeting of the bipartisan uh, Aspen Strategy Group. I'm the director of the group, and we focused over three days on this issue. And we had some of the best experts from the U.S. government and the private sector, the tech companies, come and talk to us. And they identified the same concern that you have, that China will be competing us for commercial superiority in AI and machine learning, and this is their stated 2025 policy, in quantum sciences and biotechnology, they're obviously gonna to try to militarize those technologies, and the United States cannot let ourselves be in an inferior position 
and have the Chinese leapfrog over us on these technologies five or 10 or 30 years from now. So I think I agree wholeheartedly with you. We need to make strategic investments, and the Senate is doing that. And we need to continue to do that in this strength of the American economy, innovation, high tech, biotech, because it's likely to be the central arena of competition between us with China. And if I'm confirmed, that's gonna, it will be a central focus. It already is of the Biden administration, but I'll be very focused on it. Thank you, sir, and I look forward to supporting your nomination. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. You. Thank you. Uh, Senator Merkley. Thank you very much, Ambassador, for a service over a long career. I wanted to start with recognizing you've noted that China is not an Olympian power. And that just catches my attention because the Olympics in China are just four months away in February. And as uh, we discussed in my office, I'm very concerned about the fact that the International Olympic Committee has placed the Olympics in a nation that is conducting genocide against its own people. And I, my preference would certainly have been for the Olympic Committee to say they, China had failed to follow its 2015 promises on human rights and that the Olympics were, were to be moved. That's not going to happen. The IOC has made that, made that very clear. However, uh, there are things that can be done to keep China from using the Olympics to gloss over its uh, horrific human rights act activities. Uh, for example, uh, a diplomatic boycott. Uh, another example would be fiercely defending the right of athletes to express themselves on what's going on in China while they're in China performing. Um, what, what do you think is, what would you recommend to essentially try not to have China be able to use the Olympics uh, as a way to create a cheerful facade over their horrific uh, activities against minorities in their own country. Senator, thank you. And um, I use the term Olympian uh, not to refer, as you know, to the Olympics, but just to suggest that in, if you think about ancient Greece, China's not all powerful. No, understood. Uh, on the question of the Olympic Games, the Winter Games, uh, to be held in Beijing, it looks like it's going to be the most unusual games ever. It looks like if you look at the rules and regulations that the Chinese authorities have worked out with the International Olympic Committee, there'll be really nobody there from around the world because the, um, the pre precautionary measures that people are being asked to take, and obviously given a pandemic, will make it almost impossible for spectators from Japan or the United States to be there. So I think you'll largely have a Chinese audience. I think you're right, and I, I enjoyed our conversation about this two, uh, three days ago. We obviously want to make sure that the American athletes, if, if they're there, and other athletes are able to speak their minds, are able to have access to the media to say what they wish to say because they come from democratic countries. Um, and I hope and trust that the International Olympic Committee will make that possible. Uh, thank you, uh, Ambassador. And uh, I, I think uh, fierce advocacy will be very valuable and in coordination with, with, with other nations. Uh, the Olympic Committee members say it's all about the athletes. So we don't really want to bring up, quote, political issues like human rights. But what they've done 
is force the athletes to become unwilling or unwitting participants in um, this, um, uh, well, this, this, this uh, effort to put a very bright and happy face on China at the same time there are such tragic and horrific practices. One of the biggest factors is the treatment of the, the Uyghurs and uh, essentially engaging millions in, in slavery, many high-tech practices, forced sterilization, forced birth control, forced labor, that is slave labor, and in Hong Kong where they stripped the political rights. The, uh, the Congressional Executive Commission on China held a hearing uh, in which we heard advocate after advocate say this is a moment for the United States to grant P2 status to those who are, are trying, are particularly vulnerable in these two situations, uh, both in Hong Kong and, if you will, among Xinjiang province, the Uyghur community. Uh, this is status for given to groups of special humanitarian concern. Individuals still have to establish their, their, their personal vulnerability within that group. It allows them to apply from inside or outside the country and that it's the right fit. Is P2 status for those who are vulnerable in Hong Kong and uh, in Xinjiang province uh, something that uh, you would support? Senator, thank you. Um, what I'd like to do is, is check with the State Department because I'm, I'm unsure of the answer to your question and come back to you with, a, with an answer. Perhaps we can do that in written form or I can, we, can, we can meet and talk about it. I do know that President Biden uh, has allowed um, Hong Kong residents to stay in the United States uh, on, uh, on a lengthier basis than they normally would because of the fear of persecution should they go back, given what's happened in Hong Kong. But I'm just not aware of what other measures the administration has taken or is planning, but I'm happy yep. to take that question for the record. Yeah, that status, uh, uh, deferred enforced departure, uh, has been granted to those from Hong Kong who are already in the country. Right. Uh, it's an 18-month provision. It has not been granted to Uyghurs. We've had testimony of, from Uyghurs who have been here for four years um, because of their high vulnerability in return and have, have lost and their families have lost any formal status in our, our country. Um, and um, they're awaiting action. Um, I'll just close with a comment. If the chair feels there's time to respond, fine, but I'm over, I'm over time, which is that I would really love to see uh, champions uh, in, the, in our diplomatic team um, push for an official determination of genocide in Myanmar uh, because the actions against the Rohingya fully justify it, just horrific activities. The hesitation among some in the State Department has been to uh, be critical uh, because there is a fledgling democracy, except there's no longer a fledgling democracy because the, the, uh, the military conducted a military coup and, and uh, uh, put Aung San Suu Kyi under arrest. When we fail to call out genocide in Myanmar, it undermines the legitimacy of the strength of our position on genocide elsewhere, including in Xinjiang province. So I'm, I'm encouraging consistency in calling out such horrific human practices when they occur. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Burns, welcome. I have long believed China poses the single greatest geopolitical threat to the United States 
for the next century. Uh, there are many domains on which we are standing up to China. One of the most important concerns Taiwan. Uh, and I worry that the threat to our Taiwanese allies is becoming acute. This week, the Chinese filled commercial ships with dozens of military tanks and practiced their amphibious landing capabilities in preparation for, quote, future battlefields. Earlier in the month, 149 Chinese aircraft made incursions into Taiwan's air defense zone over the span of just four days. U.S. commanders have publicly assessed that an invasion of Taiwan is, quote, much closer to us than most think. Meanwhile, Taiwan has been asking the United States to expedite the delivery of several squadrons of F-16s ordered in 2019. I strongly believe we have to do more to get them what they need to defend themselves. And I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. Number one, how do you see the Chinese threat to Taiwan, and what should we be doing to deter that threat? Senator, thank you. It's a growing Chinese threat to Taiwan, attempts to bully and intimidate and to send these 149 aircraft in, into the air defense identification zone of Taiwan. And you combine that with the statements of the Chinese leadership, which are very aggressive and clear. Um, we obviously have a self-interest, and under the Taiwan Relations Act, an obligation and commitment to help deepen our involvement in helping Taiwan to defend itself and Congress and the executive branch, and we talked about this when we met in your office, have that authority and have that responsibility on the F-16 issue. Uh, the Biden administration has come forward with um, advanced howitzer sale of $750 million. I think a lot of experts believe that Taiwan needs a greater asymmetric defense capacity, needs to spend money in that to repel as you say, an amphibious, the threat of an amphibious invasion or an airborne invasion, whatever the Chinese are thinking of. And I think that in the Taiwan Relations Act, it talks about the United States needing to make clear that its deterrent is in place, the power of our military in the Indo-Pacific, and our allies, of course, have to be part of this. So I think everyone here who's talked about Taiwan, and myself included, ought to be more concerned because the Chinese clearly are in a different path than they were 30 or 20 years ago. I think one of the most important steps we can and should take to stand with Taiwan is help prepare and equip them to defend themselves and to defend themselves effectively against a serious military incursion from China. Uh, I'm intending to introduce legislation, the Taiwan Arms Act, that raises Taiwan's status for arms sales to that of our closest allies and partners. Uh, it is important, and I look forward to working with my colleagues on this committee and other committees to see that it expeditiously becomes law. L let me turn to another aspect. Um, one part of the solution uh, to ensuring that our Taiwanese allies have what they need to defend themselves involve arms sales, such as the legislation I'm introducing, the Taiwan Arms Act. Another component of it, however, derives from our current policy of strategic ambiguity towards Taiwan and towards Taiwan status. And I'm concerned 
that that longstanding policy, and it's a policy that has exists across Democrat and Republican administrations, I'm concerned that it is undermining our efforts to bolster Taiwan. I have long advocated there is great virtue to clarity in foreign policy. The State Department is notorious for embracing lack of clarity, and strategic ambiguity seems to be one of the favorite uh, tools of Foggy Bottom. In the context of China and Taiwan, the Chinese Communist Party, I believe, interprets ambiguity as weakness and as a signal that we are not committed to Taiwan's security. How do you assess our current efforts to deter China and what do you think the role that strategic ambiguity has in those current efforts? Thank you, Senator. My own view, and this is also the view, of course, and more importantly, of the Biden administration, is that the smartest and effective way for us to help deter aggressive actions by, Taiwan, by China, excuse me, across the Taiwan Strait will be to stay with the policy that's been in place. And that's the Taiwan Relations Act, the three joint statements of 1972, 79, and 82, and President Reagan's six assurances of 1982. They're time-tested. They allow, under the Taiwan Relations Act, the executive and Congress to do more if you choose to do more, if both branches to choose to do more, to help Taiwan defend itself. Clearly, there's a different situation. You're right about that. But this is a policy that can succeed if we execute it consistently and with some strength. And as I said before, and I, I don't mean to repeat myself, but I think maybe the most important thing we can do is maintain the American military position in Japan, in the Republic of Korea, and that first island chain, but also out to our Anderson Air Force Base in Guam, and to be an effective deterrent to keep the peace. That's also part of the Taiwan Relations Act, that the United States has a role, Japan has a role. And I think under the banner of a, or the umbrella of a one China policy, where we recognize the People's Republic as the sole legal government of China. That's been the policy since 1979. We also have this unofficial relationship with Taiwan, and we can exercise responsibilities within that context. And um, I think that's the smartest way to deter the Chinese from trying to exercise force as opposed to keeping the peace and having a more respectful, uh, long-term conversation with, with Taiwan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ambassador, for your answers uh, to the questions that have been posed. Uh, the record for this particular part of the hearing will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, October 21st. Uh, please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than Thursday. I would urge you, Ambassador, that upon receipt of questions for the record, that you answer them as expeditiously and as fully as possible so that we can schedule your nomination for a business meeting. And with that, and the thanks of the committee, uh, you're excused at this time. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We have two nominations on the next panel. And we'll ask those nominees to come forward.
Thank you. All right, we'd ask our nominees to take their seats. Uh, we have two nominations on this second panel, Mayor Rahm Emanuel to be the ambassador to Japan and Mr. Jonathan Kaplan to be the ambassador to Singapore. I understand that uh, Senator Durbin and also Senator Haggerty will be introducing Mayor Emanuel today and that Senator Hickenlooper will be introducing Mr. Kaplan. So I see Senator Durbin is here with us. Let me turn to Senator Durbin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Risch. It's uh, an honor to have the opportunity to share a few words of introduction for Rahm Emanuel to be our next ambassador to Japan. Yesterday, a few colleagues and I had a chance to speak with the new IAEA director General Mariano Grossi. I think several of you may have met with him as well. We talked about not only Iran's future in nuclear program, but also North Korea. It reminded me that Japan, one of our most important allies in Asia, is at the forefront of several key national security priorities for our nation, notably the nuclear threat on and from the Korean Peninsula, Chinese actions in the South China Sea and regional economic pressure, the undermining of Hong Kong's democracy and threats against Taiwan. With the dawn of the AUKUS pact, America has signaled a, na a national commitment to the Indo-Pacific region. We need to be certain that our allies and friends and partners like Japan have a clear understanding of our goals. That's why the appointment of a new ambassador to Japan is timely and critical. Rahm Emanuel is the right person for that responsibility. I've known Rahm for more than 30 years. Perhaps his wife Amy is the only one in the room who's known him longer. I have worked with him in many capacities. His work as staff uh, leader in the uh, Clinton White House, as a member of the Illinois Congressional Delegation, when he became chief of staff to President Obama, and most closely, when he was mayor of the city of Chicago. I can tell you what is obvious. He is bright, energetic, and focused. Any mayor who can cobble together a budget in the Chicago City Council is ready for major league diplomacy. He has repeatedly shown that he can build winning coalitions at every level. And he has delivered with a legacy that we still enjoy in the city of Chicago and state of Illinois. We can still see his good work today in the Chicago public school system, transportation modernization, and in the game-changing projects like the Riverwalk in the city of Chicago. I understand Senator Haggerty uh, is also going to introduce Rahm. I thank him for that. And he previously served as Ambassador of Japan and knows the challenges all too well. Quite simply, Rahm Emanuel's lifetime of public service has prepared him to speak for America on the global stage. As such, I hope this committee will look favorably on his nomination. Thank you very much, Senator Durbin. Um, I see uh, Senator Hickenlooper is with us, so let me turn to Senator Hickenlooper. Uh, thank you, Chair um, and Ranking Member. I appreciate uh, your time and effort on this committee. I'm honored to join you today uh, to introduce Jonathan Kaplan, President Biden's nominee for U.S. 
Ambassador to the Republic of Singapore. Uh, Mr. Kaplan, well, in politics, as you all know, you get to meet a number of remarkable people. Mr. Kaplan was one of the more, if not one of the most, perhaps the most remarkable person I know. Uh, but before I go into some of the accolades on Mr. Kaplan, let me give a little context. Singapore is a crucial partner in an important region, uh, Asia's largest recipient of U.S. foreign direct investment, uh, a close ally uh, and cooperates on security and defense. There's a truly dynamic trade relationship with Singapore, uh, and they share our commitment to uh, the rule of law. It's also a, a part of the world that is, has an enduring sense of possibility. Uh, both of our countries are diverse and multicultural hubs of innovation. Um, they're both grappling with the looming threat of, of climate change and the rise of China. Uh, so much in common, a lot to learn from one another, uh, and it's essential to have someone of, of, of great quality uh, uh, to steer this partnership at such a sensitive moment. And that leader we have in Jonathan Kaplan, who shares that enduring sense of possibility. Um, he is a tested entrepreneur who understands the importance of bringing people together uh, to achieve common goals, to solve problems in the most effective and efficient ways possible. Uh, he's the chair of uh, uh, Education Superhighway, a nonprofit organization dedicated to bridging the digital divide in schools. Um, he's, John and his team built a bipartisan movement across all 50 states to bring high-speed internet to over 99% of American school children. Um, he worked with governors like me. Uh, in 2016, Colorado partnered with Education Superhighway on KidsLink Colorado. Uh, and expanded quality, affordable broadband to schools across the state. Uh, it was a, a huge success, uh, and these investments proved critical uh, uh, when learning uh, went online during COVID. Uh, John has the, the mindset of an inventor uh, and an innovator. Uh, as an inventor, he has the patents to prove it. Uh, he never accepts things as they always have been, uh, he's always envisioning how they could be better and then bringing people together to create that, that future. Uh, many of you will remember the flip phone video, uh, which he was behind and responsible for. Uh, his numerous business ventures uh, have transformed how we use not just technology, but how we record video, as I said, how we play online games, uh, and even how you uh, get your lunch to go. Uh, he has ex extensive experience uh, in the East Asian uh, theater. He's traveled to over 75 countries around the world. He's worked especially closely with corporate and government officials in China, Japan, and South Korea. He has exactly the right perspective and exactly the right experience to represent the United States and Singapore, a country that embodies the same commitment to innovation and that same enduring sense of possibility. For this vitally important partner at this vitally important time, uh, it's been now almost four years since this post was last filled, it is critical that we act swiftly to confirm a U.S. ambassador to Singapore and hopefully with a large majority, which sends a message in and of itself. So I so support John's nomination. I hope this committee uh, will do the same. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Hickenlooper. Uh, I see that Senator Haggerty has joined us as well, and he wants to join in introducing uh, Senator, um, excuse me, Mayor Emanuel. Well, thank you uh, very much, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch. I appreciate your holding this hearing. Uh, 
Um, I want to thank you for allowing me to introduce the person I think will be the next U.S. Ambassador to Japan. It's a position that I hold very near and dear to my heart, having served as our most recent ambassador to Japan from 2017 to 2019. And I'd like to say this, that, that representing one's own country is one of the greatest honors in the world. It really brings home the importance of the exceptional nation that the United States is, and it's an incredible honor that's being bestowed uh, upon those of you that will serve our nation as ambassador. It's certainly an incredible honor that my family and I cherish, and I feel certain that you will too. Today, I'm here in a very different role. I'm here as a member of the committee that oversaw my nomination. I'm over here in a different seat to introduce the nominee to be our next ambassador to Japan. While our political backgrounds couldn't be more different, I'm sure there are many issues upon which we strongly disagree. But through our recent discussions, it's become clear to me that Mayor Emanuel shares my unwavering conviction that the U.S.-Japan relationship is the cornerstone for peace and prosperity in the entire Indo-Pacific region. It's a region that's becoming even more dangerous day by day. And that makes the position of U.S. Ambassador to Japan all the more important for the United States. This is a position that's remained vacant for too long. When I served as U.S. Ambassador in Tokyo, my ability to directly engage in person with senior Japanese government officials, with business leaders, and most importantly, the Japanese people, helped to bring our strategic relationship with Japan to new heights. During my tenure, tensions in the region were remarkably high, with North Korea launching multiple ballistic missiles over Japan, and Communist China threatening Japan's administration of the Senkaku Islands in the, South China, in the East China Sea. The Japanese people and the world needed to hear directly from the U.S. ambassador when those threats occurred, and they did. As the global security focus continues to shift toward the Indo-Pacific to counter Russia's aggression and the predatory actions of Communist China, the U.S.-Japan alliance must remain the cornerstone of peace, prosperity, and security in the region. And for this posture to hold, the U.S. ambassador will need to play a critical role in, in advancing the relationship. Today, we have a great threat from Communist China toward our mutual friend, Taiwan. This is a threat that requires a strong and unified response from both the U.S. and Japan. Mayor Emanuel understands this critical circumstance, and he has assured me that he'll do everything in the immense power of the U.S. ambassador to Japan to stand strong for Taiwan's freedom, for their democratic rule. Our next ambassador to Japan must be prepared to continue a strong and clear-eyed stance for America's interest in the Indo-Pacific. He must stand for the strength of the U.S.-Japan alliance throughout the region, while continuing to support and strengthen our military presence in Japan. This presence is the largest complement of U.S. military forces stationed anywhere in the world. Mayor Emanuel has committed to me that he will be that ambassador. As a former ambassador, I know that sometimes challenges occur from within the host nation. Japan has an outdated judicial system that places that nation at a constant competitive disadvantage. We have American citizens, today a Tennessee citizen, who are caught in the Japanese judicial system, suffering from unfair and barbaric treatment in the so-called hostage justice system of Japan. It's cruel. It's inhumane, and it's unjust. 
Mayor Emanuel has assured me that he will make addressing this sad and difficult situation a top priority if he's confirmed. This matters a great deal to me, and it matters to the people of Tennessee. We must stand for the human rights of U.S. citizens, and when our citizens are unjustly held, they must be returned home. The region and the world will need to hear that the commitment of the United States to defend Japan remains ironclad and unwavering. That was my message as ambassador, and it's a message that I'm confident Mayor Emanuel will deliver if he's confirmed. While the United States will remain the predominant global power for the foreseeable future, the emerging set of challenges in the Indo-Pacific region will require our friends to stand shoulder to shoulder with us, especially Japan. As I mentioned, Mayor Emanuel and I have had many long and productive conversations about this position, both the challenges of the position and the expectations. I welcome him today, and I intend to provide him with the bipartisan support that I was fortunate to receive from this committee during my U.S. Senate confirmation. A critical post like this deserves no less from a qualified and capable nominee. I once again congratulate Mayor Emanuel and his family. I welcome them here. And as I said at the beginning of my remarks, I hope this committee takes into consideration the importance of the position and the consequence for our national security if this post were allowed to be remain vacant any longer. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Haggerty. Thank you for your service to our nation as our former ambassador to Japan. And we appreciate uh, that service and your insights here in the committee. And we appreciate uh, you lending a bipartisan vote to uh, voice to Mayor Emanuel's nomination. Uh, let's turn to the nominees. Uh, Mayor Emanuel, it's good to see you again. We welcome you and your family. And I want to note that your son, Zach, is with us, who is a US Naval officer. And we appreciate his service to our country. Uh, I believe that you have the necessary knowledge and experience to represent us well in Japan. As you know, Japan is one of our four most important allies in the world. For over 70 years, the U.S.-Japan partnership has played a vital role in ensuring peace, stability, and economic development in Asia and beyond. Our bilateral alliance serves as proof that two nations can overcome past differences and work together towards a better future. If confirmed, I trust that Mayor Emanuel's vast experience, both in public service and in the private sector, will serve him and our country well as he navigates the opportunities and complexities of the U.S.-Japan relationship and safeguarding our partnership, one that is grounded in common interests and common values. I look forward from hearing from you about how you plan to approach Japan and the region as well as the type of ambassador you hope to be. Uh, as you are aware, today is also the anniversary of the murder of Laquan McDonald. Uh, my heart goes out to his family on this day. I believe all of us uh, share that sentiment. And to so many other victims and their families as we work to deliver meaningful reforms to the black and brown communities who endure injustices every day. And certainly we will give you an opportunity uh, to speak to that uh, in the course of this hearing. Mr. Kaplan, congratulations on your nomination. We welcome your family as well. Uh, Singapore, as I know you appreciate, is central for our engagement in Southeast Asia and with ASEAN. And success in Southeast Asia is central to our success in the Indo-Pacific and with our challenge with China. While the Biden administration has lost signif launched significant initiatives to bolster the broader regional architecture, including through AUKUS and the Quad, I believe that more attention is needed in Southeast Asia 
including on issues like regional trade engagement and economic statecraft. At the end of the day, how we integrate with the region's political economy is far more consequential than our military or security presence alone. And Singapore is, of course, a key regional trade and economic partner. I was encouraged by recent agreements with Singapore to support our common goals in addressing climate change, cybersecurity, and supply chain resilience. Overall, I believe we need to reinvigorate our diplomatic presence and outreach to Singapore, and I trust that you will be up to that task. I look forward to hearing your goals for how we can deepen this important diplomatic relationship even further. We recently, Senator Rich and I recently had the Singaporean foreign minister here, and uh, he spoke about how he desires, he and Singapore desires to see our engagement. But when we have not had a confirmed ambassador in Singapore for almost five years now, it's tough to have diplomatic engagement, which underscores the importance of getting you in place as soon as possible. With that, let me turn to the ranking member for his remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, uh, uh, both of you, to our nominees for your willingness uh, to serve and, uh, and your families as well. On the nomination of Ambassador to Japan, our alliance with Japan is the bedrock of our ability to advance a free and open Indo-Pacific. Over the past uh, decades, the U.S.-Japan alliance has become a critical example of how strong defense ties can bring about stability and prosperity. As we look forward to working with the new uh, Japanese Prime Minister and his team, it is vital that we strengthen and sustain this critical alliance, especially in the face of growing regional threats. We've seen important steps in that direction, including the emphasis on cooperation with Japan, Australia, and India through the Quad. The U.S. and, uh, the US and Japan are also working together with other partners in the region to finance the construction of a reliable and secure undersea cable connecting Palau to the rest of the Indo-Pacific, as well as bring electricity to Papua New Guinea. This is the foundation for future U.S.-Japan co uh, cooperation in advanced technology, supply chain diversification, global health, and other critical areas. On the security front, we must maintain and strengthen the credibility of U.S. extended deterrence commitments. I've said it before, and I'll say it again now. The sole purpose nuclear declaratory policy or any perceived weakening of our extended deterrent is a betrayal of our alliance in the Indo-Pacific, including Japan. We must ensure our system is, uh, is equipped to provide advanced capabilities to our allies in the region. To achieve this, Japan must do its part and work with us on cybersecurity and technology security as committed uh, during uh, the uh, Su Suga Summit, the Biden Suga Summit. Uh, however, certain parts of the State Department that come up with reasons not to provide these critical capabilities are a major impediment on this issue. If, if confirmed, uh, you are, uh, Mayor Emanuel, you are going to see the security environment we face firsthand, and I expect that you will counter instincts uh, and policies that would weaken uh, our security ties with Japan. We shouldn't tolerate those. On the nomination, uh, Mr. Kaplan, of being ambassador to Singapore, if confirmed, you'll be our steward in one of our closest partners in Southeast Asia. Idahoans know just how important our security partnership with Singapore is. We're proud to host and have for some time a Singaporean F-15 pilots and their families as they train at Mountain Home Air Force Base in Mountain Home, Idaho. We should all support expanding our security cooperation with Singapore, building on the Memorandum of Understanding renewed in 2019. On the economic side, I want to hear how you will apply 
your private sector background to growing economic cooperation with Singapore, including on supply chain issues. Singapore is an important trading partner for the state of Idaho. On the defense side, Singapore has made clear that while it seeks a close relationship with the United States, it also seeks to maintain cooperation with China, including through increased defense ties. Another critical task for our, task, our next ambassador is to work with Singapore on the issues where China seeks to exert pressure or undue influence in the country. And uh, along with the chairman, uh, I want to underscore the meeting that we had that was, uh, I think, a very significant and uh, forward-looking uh, meeting we had with uh, people from, uh, from Singapore. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on all of those issues with that. Uh, thank you, Senator Rich. We'll turn to our nominees. We ask you to summarize your statements in about five minutes. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. And uh, we'll recognize Mayor Emanuel first. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, it's an honor to appear before you as President Biden's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to Japan. I appreciate the confidence that President Biden has placed in me, and I'm grateful for the consideration of this distinguished committee. Over 23 years in public service, there has been one constant in my life, Amy, my wife of 27 years. Six elections, two White House appointments, and one nomination later, she is the reason I am here today. Amy is living proof of the timeless truth that behind every successful person is an astonished spouse. Together, we've raised three great children. Zach graduated from UCLA and is serving as an intelligence officer in the United States Navy. Lana, a Brown graduate, joined the cable news network, and Leah is a junior at Princeton. This post has been held by distinguished Americans, Vice President Walter Mondale, Speaker Tom Foley, Senate Majority Leaders Howard Baker, Mike Mansfield, and Ambassador Caroline Kennedy. This long list also includes a member of this committee, Senator Haggerty. I want to thank him for his words and his comments earlier. If confirmed, I will continue the example he and his predecessor set and ensure America's interest in the region remain paramount. An ambassador is only as effective as the civil and foreign service professionals and U.S. Armed Forces who surround them. In Japan, these Americans have advanced our nation's ideals without an appointed ambassador for two years. I want to take this opportunity to thank them for their patriotism and professionalism to our mission in Japan, and I hope soon to serve our country alongside them. We are at a critical juncture in our foreign policy, in American foreign policy in this region. What we build in partnership with Japan over the next three years will determine America's posture for the next 30. The challenges and opportunities we face underscore the imperative of strengthening our bonds with our closest ally, Japan. For more than 60 years, the partnership between the United States and Japan has been the cornerstone of peace and prosperity in a free and open Indo-Pacific. Our alliance advances our shared interests and shared values. If confirmed, my top priority will be to deepen these ties while we confront our common challenges. China aims to conquer through division. America's strategy is security through unity. That regional unity is built on the shoulders of the U.S.-Japan alliance. If confirmed, I will draw on my two and a half decades of public service as senior advisor to President Clinton and chief of staff to President Obama. I served as a trusted advisor on, on domestic and national security issues. 
As mayor, my administration made it a priority to bring the world to Chicago and Chicago to the world. During my tenure, Chicago led the nation in corporate relocations and foreign direct investment for seven consecutive years. I also presided over the most active sister city organizations in America. As mayor, I traveled to Japan to meet with public and private sector leaders and signed the Japan-Chicago Partnership Agreement with the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs and eight additional ministries marking the first time the Japanese government entered into a formal agreement with a North American city. In addition, the governor of Tokyo signed the Chicago Climate Charter, a first-of-its-kind municipal agreement. This trip laid the groundwork for deepening Chicago and Japan relations, including corporate relocations by two preeminent Japanese companies, DMG Mori and Beam Suntory, and many cultural exchange initiatives. Two people inspired me to enter public service nearly 30 years ago. My mother, Marsha Emanuel, has spent her entire life serving others as a nurse, social worker, and a leader of CORE, the Congress on Racial Equality, in Chicago, where she was instrumental in the integration of Chicago's beaches and housing in the early 60s. This past October 3rd marked the two-year anniversary of my father's passing. Dr. Benjamin Emanuel immigrated to this country in 1953 with just $13 in his pocket after fighting in Israel's War of Independence. He campaigned for national health care during the early 60s and quit the AMA over its opposition. He then sued the city of Chicago for lead and household paint and started a pediatric practice based on one rule. No child was rejected because their parents could not pay. Through his years, he built his practice into one of the largest in Chicago. If confirmed, this will be the first professional pursuit I will undertake without my best friend, my father, by my side. The drive and values I have come from my parents who always loved and supported me, even though I did not become a doctor like my older brother. For my mother and father, America was a place of possibility. In his wallet, my father carried a picture of the boat that brought him to the United States. That photo represents what he instilled in me and my two brothers. The beacon of hope, possibility, and endless opportunity this country is to the world. I wish he were here today. First, while my mother is proud, he would be shocked and amazed that I'm sitting here. And second, it would reaffirm his belief in that special place we all love, America. And the final thing I have to say is the first thing I want to do. Work closely with this committee and the Congress as a whole to ensure that we work seamlessly across the aisle, across the Capitol, and across the Pacific to advance America's interests in the vital Indo-Pacific region. I would like to thank this committee for your consideration of my nomination. If confirmed, I intend to work with you to promote our economic prosperity, strengthen our national security, and ensure our democratic values remain paramount to the U.S.-Japan alliance. Under your leadership, Mr. Chairman, working with the ranking member, Senator Risch, this committee has continued its proud bipartisan tradition of putting country ahead of party. That is a mission and a mandate I proudly share. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, Mr. Kaplan. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee, I'm proud and honored to be asked to serve our country as the Ambassador to the Republic of Singapore, and it is my privilege to appear here before you today. I'd like to begin my remarks by thanking President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their trust and confidence in me. I'm also grateful to share this day with my friends, family, 
and especially my daughter, Samantha. Finally, I'd like to thank Senator Hickenlooper for his words of introduction and to the hardworking professionals at the State Department and the White House for their steadfast support of my nomination throughout this process. Vice President Harris noted during her August visit to Singapore, our world is embarking on a new era, one with many new challenges and exciting new opportunities. Our partnership with Singapore is critically important to strengthen our relationship and defend our positions within the Indo-Pacific region. For 55 years, US-Singapore diplomacy has fostered a strong friendship, a mutual respect, and a steadfast commitment to one another. The United States and Singapore's enduring partnership is based on mutual economic interests, robust security and defense cooperation, and strong people-to-people -people ties. Our two countries are close partners in support of a rules-based economy and unwavering security throughout the region. Mr. Chairman and members of this committee, Singapore is a vital economic partner to the United States. More than 5,400 U.S. companies are registered in the city-state, and these businesses provide responsible, sustainable investment for the region and directly support more than 215,000 American jobs here at home. In 2003, the United States and Singapore signed a free trade agreement, our first bilateral goods and services agreement with any Asian country, and the cornerstone of a now $90 billion trade partnership. The United States is the largest foreign investor in Singapore, with more than $270 billion in direct investments, making Singapore the largest recipient of U.S. investment in the Indo-Pacific. If confirmed, I plan to strengthen our bilateral trade relationship, advance an economic agenda that promotes a shared prosperity, further secure our economic resiliency and access to supply, and work closely with Singapore to tackle the climate crisis. Singapore is a critical partner in enabling strong U.S. security presence in the region. It is Southeast Asia's largest purchaser of U.S. military equipment, with more than $20 billion invested in both direct commercial sales and foreign military sales over the past decade. Singapore's agreement to purchase the F-35B aircraft highlights the historically close relationship between our air forces and exemplifies our close security cooperation. The cornerstone of this partnership is the 1990 U.S.-Singapore Memorandum of Understanding, which governs our presence in Singapore and allows for the rotational deployment of both U.S. littoral combat ships and Navy P-8s. If confirmed, I look forward to the opportunity to strengthen our security cooperation and defend a rules-based international order, which has supported peace and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific region. The United States and Singapore have also benefited from a strong law enforcement and home security partnership. This work strengthens the security of our citizens, our companies, and our nations by combating the difficult challenges of commercial crime, terrorism, cybercrime, and illicit trade. Personal relationships are the foundation of a strong and secure Indo-Pacific region. U.S.-Singapore people-to-people ties are robust, and Singaporeans are active participants in U.S. educational and exchange programs. Prior to the pandemic, more than 4,000 Singaporeans were studying in the United States, and more than 1,000 Americans studied in Singapore. In fact, more than half of Singapore's cabinet ministers have studied in the United States, including the current prime minister who studied at Harvard. The United States and Singapore have also partnered together through our third country training program, 
For more than 10 years, the program has provided technical assistance and educational opportunities to over 1,500 ASEAN officials, drawing on the depth and breadth of a US-Singaporean friendship and our expertise. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this committee to advance the United States' interests in Singapore, to create an even stronger set of relationships between our two countries, and to help further a secure and rules-based Indo-Pacific region overall. Mr. Chairman, members of this committee, I thank you for the opportunity to appear here today, and I look forward to any questions. Thank you both. Uh, we'll start around the five-minute questions before I recognize uh, myself for that. Let me ask some questions that are uh, on behalf of the committee as a whole. Uh, they speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness uh, by all officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you. So I'd ask each of you to provide a yes or no answer to the following questions. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Yes. Do you commit to keeping the committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Yes. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. Yes. And do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. Yes. Thank you. The nominees have both responded yes to all those questions. Let me uh, start off. Uh, Mayor Emanuel, uh, I uh, want to talk to you about uh, our previous nominee. Was We were talking about China a lot. Japan, Japan's going to pay a, a big role in that. Given the realities of our new era, era of strategic competition with China, what do you think the U.S.-Japan alliance needs to concentrate and act upon to be capable to meet the new and emergent regional challenges? In essence, uh, how do we get them to be all in? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the question, as we discussed yesterday. I think the world has learned a lot in COVID. We uh, exposed some of our vulnerabilities, and I think China's been exposed for their venality. You can ask that of India, you can ask that of the people leaving Hong Kong, you can ask that of what's happened now to Australia in that area, and you can also see it by how Philippines have reacted to what's happened to their uh, fish fleet and on their border. The region is desperate for America's leadership, and that was seen recently with AUKUS. The entire strategy in the region, when we repeat the words Indo-Pacific, that actually was an architectural frame first deposited by former Prime Minister Abe. And we've all adopted it, which means that our ally sees their vision as a one that we have adopted and will advance. Every effort we make in bringing our allies together, not only militarily or strategically, but also with economic integration, also with cultural and political, is built on the shoulders of a U.S.-Japan relationship. And to me, the way we confront China, their entire strategy, as I think everybody can see, is to literally make sure that all roads, it's a one-way road to Beijing's benefit. And the countries in that area know that. They're desperate for America all in. And Australia showed they're ready to bet long on America. That is also true of Japan, our longest, deepest ally in the region. 
And what we must do is make that a cornerstone of both military efforts, strategic efforts. And I would conclude on this one point. The recent prime minister gave a speech and said that they were going to, they're going to raise their budget in defense spending above 1%, which has been the norm. That means for the first time I know that Senator Haggerty must have been lobbying on that constantly. It's happening. Making sure that they do the type of weapons acquisitions that are interoperable with us, but also part of our strategic blueprint and frame, makes that a key opportunity because I think now, not just in the region, but in this particular friendship and partnership, it's an inflection point. As I said in my remarks, and I want to echo it again, what we do over the next three years will determine our presence, our vision for the next 30 in the region. Let me turn to Japan in terms of the context of being one of the world's leading technology industries, especially in fundamental technologies like semiconductor components. Mm -hmm. How do we facilitate greater cooperation between the United States and Japan on tech and innovation? And how do we make steps to better integrate those efforts with the regional strategy more broadly? Well, Mr. Chairman, I see this as a unique opportunity whether it's on intellectual property, whether it's on infrastructure investment, whether it's on supply chain, we have a partner that is begging for America's continued investment. When, when Australia, by way of example, bet long on the United States, China's reaction was to say we want on, in TPP. That was an attempt to say we're gonna be the dominant player. Everything we do has to send one message, one signal. It's a good bet to get bet long on the United States. And Japan has a huge partnership, whether it's in the pharmaceutical space, the IP in general, infrastructure, supply chain, to be that partner. And you can see that already by President Biden, his partnership is not only in the Quad, two meetings they've had, but also in his discussions with the individual, with the Japanese prime minister. The issue of supply chain, the issue of microchips, is key to that strategy, and I think Japan is ready for the type of next stage in U.S.-Japan relationships, and that as we make these investments, it's an opportunity to actually start to, uh, as I would say, tighten the economic integration of the largest and the third largest economy. When those two are tight, it's a very, very strong force. Lastly, uh, as I noted earlier, I'd like to give you an opportunity to address the committee concerning Laquan McDonald. So take a moment to do so. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for the opportunity to address the question. Seven years ago, a young man had his life taken on the streets of the city of Chicago. He had all the promise ahead of him and a police officer took his life, killed him. I said then, I'm the mayor, and I'm responsible and accountable for fixing this so this never happens again. And to be honest, there's not a day or a week that has gone by in the last seven years. I haven't thought about this and thought about the what-ifs and the changes and what could have been. And I think we all know that over the last 10 years, there's not a city in this country, regardless of size, that hasn't dealt with the gulf between police activities and the oversight and accountability that's necessary. And Chicago's no different. And as soon as events happened, IPRA, the Oversight Authority, 
is on the scene. Shortly after that, the state's attorney opened an investigation, and not too far from then, the U.S. attorney and the FBI opened an investigation. And you have three ongoing investigations happening simultaneously of that night and events there. Of. As you know, there's a long-standing protocol and practice that nothing's released in the middle of an investigation for fear of either prejudicing a witness or endangering a prosecution. That was the practice, long-standing, not just in Chicago, across the country. And as recently as May 2nd of this year, the New York Times wrote a story saying, or reported a story, that there's no uniform standard or policy for the release of police video. It doesn't exist today, and it didn't exist back in 2014 and 2015, except for the policy that had been in place about the integrity of an investigation. And you don't want to prejudice a witness. You don't want to prevent a prosecution because of premature release of video or any prima facie evidence. Now, that view and that principle runs headlong into another very important value, and that is the deep suspicion, distrust, and skepticism that exists in the community about the authorities investigating the authorities and getting to the bottom of what happened. And the longer an investigation goes on, the greater the uh, distrust and the greater the skepticism about what's really happening here, and that it's not about finding out what happened and getting to the bottom of it, but this is a whitewash and a cover-up. And you have this kind of tension to conflict between the integrity of an investigation so you don't harm it, and the deep, well-deserved and well-earned distrust by the community in the authorities. Now, I see in that, that, and this is my view, that the last person you want to make a unilateral decision about the release of a video while the FBI and the U.S. Attorney, the State's Attorney, and IPRA are investigating is a politician. It should be made by professionals. The moment a politician unilaterally makes a decision in the middle of an investigation, you've politicized that investigation, and more, more importantly, you may have endangered the prosecution in bringing somebody to justice. Second, I would say, in the first term of my tenure, I made a number of changes that dealt with oversight accountability. And it is clear to me those changes were inadequate to the level of distrust. They were on the best marginal. I thought I was addressing the issue, and I clearly missed the level of distrust and skepticism that existed, and that's on me. In addition, I would say third, the point of afterwards, there was a number of inquiries, both by the inspector general, a special prosecutor, all looked at what happened in the events afterwards. And nobody suggested or concluded that anybody in my office or I myself did anything improper. Now, this committee is in the possession 
have a lot of letters of support from the leadership of the Black Caucus in Chicago to the leadership in the House, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker, Majority Leader Hoyer, Whip Clyburn, the chairmen of the two committees, Greg Meeks, your sister committee in the House, Chairman Adam Schiff. You also have letters from the Chamber of Commerce and the Chicago Federation of Labor and Building Trades. All speak to my professional capacities. You also have a letter from Pastor Marvin Hunter. He's a reverend on the west side of the city of Chicago. And the reason that's relevant is he speaks to my person and my character, not just my professional abilities. And he is Laquan McDonald's great uncle. We have prayed together over the last couple of years, gotten to know each other, gotten to talk about if we had a magic wand, how we would fix what's broken in our criminal justice system, talked about current events, We've even argued about the Cubs and the Sox. But most importantly, we've gotten to find a common understanding. And I'm appreciative of his support for my nomination, as I am of the other leaders in Chicago and the leaders here in the House that I serve with. And I'm appreciative of what they said. That all being said, Mr. Chairman, it take, doesn't take away from the fact that a grave tragedy occurred seven years ago to this day on the streets of the city of Chicago. And that tragedy sits with me as it has every day and every week for the last seven years. Thank you very much. And uh, you mentioned letters uh, in the possession of the committee. All of those letters will be included in the record, including uh, Mr. Uh, uh, McDonald's um, uh, relative. Senator Risch. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Uh, Senator Haggerty has a uh, important engagement and has asked uh, me to yield to him. Happy, happy to have you defer to Senator Haggerty. Senator Haggerty. Thank you very much, uh, Ranking Member Risch and Chairman Menendez. I'll have to confess that that important engagement is my ninth grade daughter's parent-teacher conference that's coming up, uh, and I appreciate your accommodating me to take care of that. That's a super important engagement. Indeed, so. sir. <laughs> thank you. Um, Mayor Emanuel, I'd like to talk about the relationship between the United States and Japan. Uh, as you know, we have a critically important economic relationship with Japan. In fact, Japan is the number one investor in my home state of Tennessee, more than all the other nations combined, in fact. Uh, that's been a vital and critical relationship with my home state. But today, there exists a real impediment to that relationship. That has to do with the case of a US citizen a Tennessee citizen named Greg Kelly. And it's in our nation's interest to resolve this situation quickly. I'd like to go through the facts. Greg Kelly of Tennessee was arrested in Tokyo, Japan on November the 19th, 2018. Greg, a lawyer at Nissan, was charged by a Tokyo prosecutor with conspiring to under-report Carlos Ghosn's compensation as a Nissan director. Greg's defense attorneys plan to present their closing arguments next Wednesday, October 27th, 35 months after Greg was deceived into leaving his home in Tennessee and he was arrested in Japan. Let me underscore that. It's been 35 months to get to this point where his defense attorneys are actually able to close their case. For reasons that defy logic, a verdict is not expected until March of next year, 18 months after the trial began and more than three and a half years after Greg's trial, after Greg was first detained 
Here's the injustice. Impartial Japanese expert observers, including private corporate lawyer Keiko Ohara, have said that this matter should have been handled internally, not in a courtroom. Media reports indicate even Prime Minister Shinzo Abe held this view. Former Japanese prosecutor Nobu Gohara and criminal accounting specialist Yuji Hosano have publicly stated that Japan's judicial system has violated Greg's human rights and that there was no reason to arrest him because there was no criminal violation. Mr. Kelly's lawyers believe the evidence introduced at this trial made abundantly clear that no crime was committed. In reality, this was a coup by those within Nissan management who resisted further integration into the parent Renault. And they were willing to do anything to take down someone standing in their way. I've conveyed this concern directly to the cabinet level in Japan. I've let them know that America is the largest investor in Japan. That Americans, American executives see this as an issue that rightfully should have been resolved in a courtroom, not in a prosecutor's office. This is a terrible message to send to the rest of the world. It's bad for Japan's brand. And it's devastating to any American that happens to get caught in this system. With this type of justice system, I fear that American executives will start thinking twice about doing business in Japan. So here's the duty. Our embassy has a responsibility to protect US citizens, to protect Mr. Kelly from this injustice. And Mayor Emanuel, if you're confirmed as ambassador, will you make it a matter of top priority to see that Mr. Kelly's name is cleared and he's returned to the United States as soon as possible? Uh, Senator Haggerty, as you know, uh, we've talked about this. The good news is there's Japanese media here, so I want them to hear exactly if, if I'm fortunate enough to have the support of this committee. I've already started to inquire about this that I want to report on my desk, and you and I both know that if you start asking that, that goes from here to up here as a top priority. Yes. Number two, this is a constituent. I was a former congressman. I'm going to not treat this as a piece of business as being an ambassador. I'm going to treat this as what a former congressman would approach when a constituent is in, tr is in trouble and underscore what I think is an important point right now. Number one responsibility of an embassy and ambassador is to make sure the safety and ensure the safety of a U.S. citizen on foreign soil. You have my word, as I said to you privately. I'm saying it publicly. Again, I'm not confirmed, and I wish I uh, hope I do get the confidence of this committee, but I know that the Japanese media is here so they can hear it directly. This is not just another piece of business to be checked off. I'm going to be approaching this subject as a former U.S. congressman who knows what it means when you have a constituent at heart. Well, thank you very much. I intend to support your confirmation, and I appreciate your taking on this matter of critical interest to Tennesseans and to my constituent, but also a matter of critical national interest for our two nations. Thank you. Senator, I've had a ninth grader, a nine-year-old on my watch, three of them. You get the medical slip right now. I would get it over there. Thank you. Senator thank you, Mr. Martin. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank both of our nominees uh, for their willingness to serve our nation in critically important uh, positions. Mr. Kaplan, uh, later today, I'm going to be chairing a hearing of the U.S. Helsinki Commission on the freedom of the media. We'll have the OSCE representative, Ribeiro, who, uh, for the, who's a representative for the freedom of the, of the media. I mention that because when people think of Singapore, 
and I've been to Singapore, you know it's economic power. You know of, of what it means, its strategic location in the shipping lanes. You recognize the importance of this economic partnership that the United States has uh, with Singapore, including the free trade agreement. But there's another part of Singapore. It's a rigid country. It's ranked by Reporters Without Borders as 160th out of 180 in its annual World Press Freedom Index, behind its neighbors such as Cambodia and Myanmar. So my question to you, uh, President Biden has, has made it clear that our foreign policy is going to be wrapped in our values. The freedom of the media is critically important for any democratic state. How will you make this a priority? the safety of reporters and the freedom of the media uh, will have a, a, a voice in our mission in Singapore. Thank you very much for that uh, question, Senator. You know, for 55 years, the United States and Singapore have been incredible partners. We've been partners on counterproliferation. We've been partners on maritime security. We've been, as you said so eloquently, incredible trading partners and economic partners. And um, when it comes to fundamental freedoms, especially freedom of the press, which is an incredibly important topic of, uh, for us as a country, for sure, you know, I think this is an area where, if I'm confirmed, we're going to have to engage with the Singapore government. The nice thing is friends are able to talk about difficult topics. They may not want to change. We're going to want them to change. But we're going to have a dialogue. This is an area of fundamental freedoms. This is a topic of importance for the administration, and this is a priority for me. Will you make your office available for those in Singapore who need a voice in regards to the freedom of the media? Absolutely. Thank Again, you. globally, this is an important issue. It's not just an issue that is personally important to me, but is important to the United States and to the administration overall. Thank you. Mayor Emanuel, it's good to see you. Uh, thank you for your willingness to continue to get involved in helping our communities. You've taken on some tough assignments from uh, the chief of staff of a president to being a congressman dealing with the day-to-day -day activities of keeping constituents happy uh, to being a, a mayor of, of, of Chicago. Uh, I, I want to talk about one issue uh, in regards to our relationship with Japan. We could talk about a lot of different issues, but we've already talked about some of the military aspects. We have 50,000 troops stationed in Japan. We are in the process of negotiating the special measures agreement that will deal with a transition. You already mentioned the 1%, but the transition to the post-World War II concept of Japan, to Japan being a strategic partner of the, of the Western powers in dealing with protecting democracy. So, I just really want to get your thoughts as to how you will be engaged with our committee with Congress and certainly with uh, the Defense Department and in the, in, in the White House, as we talk about Japan's modernization of its military capacity and commitment and how that will affect U.S. military presence in Japan and the current arrangements that we have between our two countries. Senator, thank you very much for the question. As we've talked before, Japan today willing to go to from 1% to 2% is a sea change in thinking. It's a reflection that they know they have a greater role to play and they have greater threats. 
not just the percentage of a number, but what that number would reflect, what are they looking at buying, what are they looking at adding. That's essential for their security and also essential for our partnership in that effort. And I do think, not just in that 2% in that strategy, I don't think it can lost on all of us that there were the first country to articulate the idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific. That's now become the nomenclature and the term that we use, they use, and our other allies do. And it's also a bulwark that it makes sure that China hears that this is a part of the world that we're going to stay in, that our ally, our number one ally in the region, is now upping its game in a way that could not have happened before. And if you look over the span of the last 60 years, Japan has moved forward each time in taking a more critical and a more, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, forward-leaning effort. But I, I would like to be also stress, the military hardware is one thing. It's just a component when you link up the United States and Japan. It's also the opportunity to see climate change investments, infrastructure investments, IP protection, IP investments. Those are not challenges, those are opportunities. And so, and when we do that together, not only do we send a signal to China, but more importantly, we send a signal about America. We are strong because of our allies and our unity. China has one strategy, a one-way road to Beijing's benefit. And everybody in that region, most importantly Japan, know that a United States doubling down on its commitments in the Indo-Pacific area makes them more secure, makes the region more safe and open, and it's a values-based system, not based on one country's proclivity. And anything that challenges that must be met with the united force of all of our allies and friends in the region. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Rich. Thank you, uh, Mr. Mayor Emanuel. You and I have talked about this, but uh, I want to uh, underscore again this uh, particular subject. As you know, the extend our extended nuclear deterrence uh, underpins U.S. security architecture in the Indo-Pacific, and of course, a part of that is a strategic ambiguity. You've maybe heard our discussions a bit about uh, uh, consideration, at least, uh, of U.S. adopting a sole purpose uh, statement uh, as opposed to a strategic ambiguity. Um, I, I would urge that uh, when you go uh, to the Indo-Pacific and you hear not only from Japan but from all of the uh, of our partners there, their concerns about this, I hope you will uh, convey that in the strongest terms to the current administration. Can I get your thoughts on that? Um, thank you, Ranking Member Risch, for the question. And I would, uh, as I said to you privately, you and I know that the last time there was a review of our posture in the region, there was no country, and not just in the region, internationally, around the world, no country was greater consulted and whose views were greater considered as we enunciated our policy than Japan. While I am not privy to those conversations today, uh, I would be shocked that it wasn't following that pattern that Japan's security interests are paramount to the articulation and the revision as we look to the policy. And I will just say nothing about the current events, whether that's what's happening in North Korea, what China just did over the last two weeks vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan or with the hypersonic, has given anybody any sense 
that as we review this policy, it has to be done in consultation with our allies and friends in the area, and none more important than Japan. And so when I articulate, it's not me, it's Senator President Biden who has said, everything we do there is built on the shoulders of the U.S.-Japan friendship. That's where the rubber hits the road exactly on that area. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I, with your experience, I have no doubt that you're able to deliver tough messages sometimes when people don't want to hear it. Well, so, uh, Senator, I mean, uh, Mr. Ringmer, I think it could be said as a moment of self-awareness. Nobody's ever walked out of a meeting saying, wonder where Rom stands on this. So uh, you have my assurance. Right, that's, that's comforting. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Mr. Kaplan, uh, I uh, really uh, uh, am impressed with the fact that the administration has seen fit to uh, uh, appoint someone with your qualifications from the private sector, uh, a capitalist, if you would, to, uh, uh, to uh, the Singapore. Uh, our trade relationship with Singapore, I think, is not very much appreciated by most Americans. And uh, I, your, your appointment there, I think, will help underscore that. In Idaho, they're one of our uh, important trade partners. Uh, we've enjoyed a great relationship with them. And of course, uh, they, uh, they have a troop station there that uh, are, have, are in constant training. So I uh, appreciate you doing that. Uh, I hope that uh, uh, you will uh, take into consideration uh, how important they are as a trading partner and continue to encourage that. Uh, it's, a, it's a great benefit uh, both ways. So thank you much. I look forward to it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to both of the nominees. Um, Mr. Kaplan, your, your background of work in Asia makes you uniquely suited for this position. And, and Mr. Mayor, it's good to see you here. The Japan-U.S. relationship requires that an ambassador go to Japan and the Japanese understand this is somebody who's very close to the president, that they, they really want to see an ambassador who has a direct line to the president, and you do, and I believe that's the reason you've been chosen. I, I appreciate you sharing at length uh, about Mr. McDonald, because what a, what a tragedy. And I was a mayor, and every day in cities, beautiful things happen and tragic things happen. And that's the case in any city, and you can't be a mayor, especially of a city like Chicago, without picking up some scar tissue on the way. But your description of, of what you learned along the way, that the, the levels of distrust that some in communities feel toward people in power, toward politicians, toward police, I, I had to learn and then relearn those lessons often in my time as the mayor of a majority African-American city. And I'm sure since Chicago is a much bigger city than Richmond, Virginia, that those lessons were challenging and painful for you during your entire tenure, but you served in an admirable way. Um, I, I want to just ask you one question that really, it's, it's maybe a little bit about Japan's domestic politics, which ambassadors don't even get involved in, but, but uh, you, you pointed out accurately that the U.S. network of alliances in the Indo-Pacific is incredibly important as we think about China threat, and there's no alliance that's more important than the U.S.-Japan alliance. I'm very excited that numerous presidents now have invested in this notion of the quad um, and that and President Biden is really operationalizing it beyond strategic dialogue to do vaccine diplomacy and other things. But as I look at the quad, there, there's a, an obvious omission, you know, I, and, and, and that is South Korea. South Korea should be in that, and yet the, 
challenges between Japan and South Korea uh, have been of longstanding, uh, um, you know, longstanding historical challenges. What might you be able to do as an ambassador to Japan to help, you know, encourage closer and closer relationships between these two nations that are such great allies of the United States and have so much in common in terms of the threats that they face in the region? Senator uh, Kane, thank you for the question. I think that Japan, I mean, to be, Japan has a new prime minister and there's a new election. That will also be true in the spring of South, uh, in the spring of the uh, coming year in South Korea. I think we're both familiar, having run for office, what that does. Mm -hmm. As a general principle, and this has been articulated both by uh, the president and I've heard him in different situations and in a prior when I wore a different hat than mayor, but as chief of staff. I think as it relates to this as a general kind of at 10,000 feet, you never want the 20th century to rob us of the opportunities of the 21st century. Not that those aren't heartfelt and serious, and they are. So as a one, keeping people focused on the future and our commonality, not what divides us. And the United States, an ambassador both from the United States here, but also in uh, South Korea, can play an important role in facilitating that focus on the future rather than any tensions that legitimately exist about the past. In that said, and I'm aware, uh, like you, of politics, which is not a bad word, is nobody at this point, you don't want to embarrass or shame any one of the two parties publicly. So the goal would be to keep the private conversations moving forward so there's no sense in a public way that they have been for their own respective roles and responsibilities to their publics are not cornered from the opportunity to make the most of the 21st century. What Japan faces, South Korea, the United States, I see the channel, what people refer to as either climate change, infrastructure, IP protection, investments uh, in the supply chain. Those aren't challenges. They're tremendous opportunities for greater integration, greater advancements of our cooperation, and strengthening a rules-based system that all three share. So from the challenges, make them opportunities for greater cooperation between the three parties. Two, focused on the 21st century opportunities, not the challenges of the 20th century, and don't let the 20th century rob us of what we can build together, the three. And third, don't do anything that surprises people in public so they have the opportunity to be, for lack of another way of saying it, to lean forward in a collaborative and productive way. Thank you for that. And Mr. Kaplan, I'm going to be very proud to support your nomination. I was going to ask you a question about press freedom, the same question that Senator Cardin asked. There's so much right in the U.S.-Singapore relationship. The low ranking of Singapore on global press indices is a continuing challenge, and I'll look forward to, uh, I'm confident you'll be confirmed. I'll look forward to working with you on those. If I'm confirmed, I'll obviously look forward to working with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Senator Coons. And thank you very much, Mr. Chairman and uh, Mayor Emanuel and Mr. Kaplan. I very much uh, look forward to our exchange today uh, and appreciate the testimony you've already provided. And um, let me also um, thank your families uh, for supporting you, um, to Amy and um, to Zach, who I had the uh, opportunity to meet um, in person, but I've spoken to before, and to Lana, 
uh, and other family members, Leah, who are watching. Um, and thank you, Mayor, for sharing um, your personal story and journey and what that has uh, brought to you and your uh, decades of public service. Uh, and to Mr. Kaplan and um, uh, your daughter, Samantha, uh, and other members of your um, life who are with us today, uh, it's just it's wonderful to have both of you in front of us and to have this chance uh, to interact with you about these two important positions that have been vacant for too long with two absolutely vital uh, Indo-Pacific partners for the United States. Um, I am, as I think you both know, the chair of the Appropriations Subcommittee responsible for our foreign assistance. And uh, Japan is also a major donor uh, in development assistance in the region. And one of the reasons I worked uh, with a number of my colleagues to help create the Development Finance Corporation was so that we had a new and more modern tool, uh, more capable of partnering uh, with um, JBIC and ADB, the Asian Development Bank and uh, the Japanese um, Investment uh, entity, how do you believe, uh, Mr. Mayor, that we can use the DFC to more closely partner uh, with Japan's development entities? And how do you think uh, partnering uh, with our regional um, allies, uh, whether it's Australia or Japan, South Korea, others uh, in development finance, uh, might actually create a new uh, chapter in providing alternatives that are more transparent, that are more um, sustainable um, for the development of the region? Senator Coons, thank you for that question. I do want to take one second and personally, as I have privately, thank you publicly. When you were on a CODEL to Korea, you personally called Zach to check in on him. And a high order, you made one Jewish grandmother and mother very happy. And that's a very tall order. So I want to thank you, Senator, for doing that personally on a serious note. In the process of talking to a lot of people, one, I did not realize that Japan is a, is a actually larger investor in infrastructure around the region than China. We hear a lot about belt and roads, about the China plan. Japan is actually by about a number of about 75 billion in US dollars bigger than China and the region. That's a big uh, asset with our ally. Second, on top of it, if you do polling among the public in the region, Japan is the most popular country. Again, a big asset in our partnership. Third, as I've repeated, uh, as I said earlier, and I want to repeat, the architecture from Prime Minister Abe lives on and is now adopted by all, which is a free and open Indo-Pacific. I think making these investments in infrastructure, our creative financing, our strategy can make an opportunity both for these type of economic opportunities that would exist in uh, infrastructure that's linked in uh, with the United States and Japan, and two, because we will do it in a way that's open based on a rules-based system, it will stand in direct contrast to the violations of China's belt and roads that, is more, that doesn't meet the standards of OECD standards. And I think that opportunity for us to talk to future countries that may be looking at uh, the United States or Japan and say, here are the way we're going to do this so you don't become debt dependent like often happens with China. That is a key opportunity with an ally, a popular ally, who shares the same values and, rule, and commitment to a rules-based system. That is something that we want to harness to our strategic overall interests in the region. Thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit more, if we can, about uh, the modern digital economy and ways in which uh, trade and better integration uh, with Singapore, with Japan, with the region uh, would actually serve uh, our interest. And the digital trade agreement between the United States and Japan that we concluded in 2019 could be a useful starting point 
Um, Singapore has been a leader uh, in creating digital trade agreements with its trading partners. Uh, and USTR Catherine Tai recently met with her Singaporean counterpart, and they expressed uh, an intent to work together on digital trade. Um, I'd be interested in hearing from both of you, if I can, um, how we could advance work uh, with Japan, with Singapore, to set rules and standards for the digital economy that can serve as a model for the region, a uh, model for the world, and help provide a, a more attractive alternative uh, to digital authoritarianism. Do you want to go first? Sure, sure. thank you so much uh, for that question. Well, I think, um, as I said, since uh, 2003, we've enjoyed an incredible free trade agreement with Singapore and the $90 billion that, you know, is um, passing between our, our borders uh, is an a critical component to the economic success of, of really the region and, and of both countries. And I think as the world moves digital, I think it's going to be incredibly important for, for me, if I'm confirmed, to make sure that Singapore understands this, make sure that we are involved in these discussions, make sure that as Japan and other uh, countries in the Indo-Pacific region start to develop these agreements that the United States is right there front and center. I want to echo uh, my friend, uh, Ambassador-to-be, hopefully Kaplan has said, we've talked about this in our training, and I would just say, and again, if have the opportunity to be confirmed, work alongside, a digital writing of the rules is exactly what we want to be doing by saying this is a rules-based system, not based on one country's own self-interest, but what stands the test of time for all the countries in the party. And as somebody who's been a student of our politics, talking about it this way, approaching the digital piece of the economy, the writing the rules, gets us away from the kind of what I would call uh, hunger games of our politics moment you say the word trade, or at the moment uh, you talk about that, but dealing with writing the rules goes to the strength of a partnership based on a values-based, rules-based system rather than going and dealing with, I think, our, the weaker part of our politics. And I think that would advance our interests uh, in the region. And it's very clear by the, uh, the ambassador to the USDR from the United States, she has made that clear as well. Well, thank you both. Um... Mr. Mayor, you, you demonstrated your diplomatic skill with the, the breadth of who introduced you today. <laughs> um, you were both introduced by uh, wonderful colleagues, uh, and I look forward to uh, visiting uh, Japan and Singapore in the future and to working with you uh, in your roles. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I understand Senator Van Hollen is with us virtually. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations uh, to both of these nominees. Um, Want to get back in person, but uh, the the scheduling prevented that. So uh, to Congressman Emanuel, uh, good to see you back on Capitol Hill. Uh, I want to ask you about the North Korean threat, uh, because as you know, uh, just a few days ago, North Korea launched a ballistic, ballistic missile uh, into the waters off of Japan. This has been part of a pattern over many, many years, um, as North Korea has also strengthened its nuclear uh, weapons capacity. Uh, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida said in response to the most recent launch, quote, we cannot overlook North Korea's recent development in missile technology and uh, must work with them and the threat, work to address the threat in the region. Uh, so uh, a number of years ago, uh, Senator Toomey and I worked together. The Congress passed uh, something called the Brink Act, the Otto Warmbier uh, Brink Act 
and it requires uh, the executive branch to impose secondary sanctions on uh, financial institutions that are helping North Korea uh, escape uh, the sanctions regime. I think um, we need to do a better job at uh, making sure that we're imposing those sanctions uh, because it seems to be a pretty leaky uh, sanctions regime right now. But given uh, the interest that Japan and, of course, South Korea have uh, in you know, addressing the ongoing threat from North Korea, what what should this administration be doing, the Biden administration be doing, and what will you do if confirmed as our ambassador to Japan to help address this threat? Senator uh, Van Hollen, thank you for the question. I would like to note since we usually, since we were in the first, our classes together, we got elected to Congress, we talked to each other by first name, but Senator Van Hollen, I think Japan, uh, North Korea's recent actions in just the past month, uh, a number of tests of uh, new missiles and new offensive weapons has alerted Japan and South Korea to the collaboration and cooperation that's essential with the United States of having a common front. And my intention is to work not as a representative for the United States government in doing everything to facilitate as I think I said to an earlier question, that we make sure that we uh, deal with 21st century issues as allies and partners and not let the 20th century rob or mug that opportunity. This is a serious challenge as it relates to security, and it's a security related to both uh, South Korea and Japan, and therefore it's a security concern for the United States. And it will be one of the top priorities I will have is to work on that uh, collaboration and understanding so there's a united front with the United States, Japan, and South Korea. And I will be put, you know, there, obviously this is much higher if I was to be confirmed than my pay grade, but I'll be putting my oar in the water to pull alongside and make sure that the objectives laid out by the Secretary of State, the President of the United States, as we confront this common challenge, is made sure that it's executed upon and it stays front and center. No, I, I appreciate that. Um, look, I, I think the new administration, the Biden administration, um, is still sort of framing its um, approach uh, to North Korea. But I think this most recent missile test um, underscores the importance of, you know, determining exactly what approach we're going to take, and obviously working closely with our allies, Japan and South Korea and others. Uh, speaking about um, security arrangements and allies, uh, the Quad has become an increasingly uh, important sort of structure uh, for addressing uh, security and economic and other issues um, in the Indo-Pacific uh, region. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you envision working with Japan uh, to strengthen the Quad uh, partnership? I mean, you are exactly right, and I would say if you could, we could hold the quad up. And what the president's doing is taking something that was a bipartisan concept, started in prior administrations, and really has evolved, including under President Trump and prior to that, President Obama. And President Biden has put some real meat on the bones, as, and it's not an accident that it's the, the quad, both virtually and in person, is the only entity that he's met with now twice in his short tenure as president. And all the parties, India on its own border, Australia with the recent um, change in the uh, nuclear sub, nuclear powered sub acquisition, 
and then Japan with its own recent budget on its defense investment, know that the partnership here is a essential one for the strategic interests as we all the parties confront a threat both by uh, China uh, and any threat uh, strategically or militarily. And so I see the Quad as, uh, as the President has enunciated, as the backbone of both economic and security interests in the region of the United States and working with our closest allies who have the same um, sense that this is an important for now, a very, very important tool for America's uh, foreign policy in the area and strategic interests being articulated and acted upon. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you and Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you. And um, I best to Amy and the family, and I look forward to supporting uh, your nomination. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Merkley. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank you both. Extensive records of public service, and, and uh, Mayor, there's no question, as members of the, the Senate have pointed out, you have this extensive depth and breadth of public service that brings um, a tremendous amount of knowledge to serving the United States when confirmed. But um, I, I feel it's important to explore one piece that you've made reference to. We've received on the committee a letter from a dozen aldermen, state representatives, state senators, a county commissioner, uh, asking we take a close look at the question of systemic racism and how the role of city leaders working closely with police departments sustains inequities. And um, certainly in my home state, we've wrestled with this. My largest city, Portland, has predominantly white police force that has a record of uh, shootings and shootings of uh, members of the minority community, black and Hispanic citizens. That has been a very contentious issue. And Chicago had this as well, 2010 to 2015. Police fired funny 528 cases. They, they hit citizens 262 times. They fatally shot 92 individuals. Of those who uh, were hit, 94% oh, were members of minority communities, Asian, Black, or Hispanic. Uh, the, um, when you and I met, and I appreciated your, your comments and thoughts. You said kind of the, the big mistake you made was that you took at full, full faith uh, an evaluation from a group of police officers that the shooting of Laquan McDonald was a good shooting, um, a term that apparently the police used. That group of officers that rendered that, was that an official police review board? The, uh, we said, Senator, and I thank you for the question, um, and I, I think there are two parts I'd like to address both, if I could. Uh, that, I, but please don't eat up all my time. Oh, no, I won't. I know that's a, a great tactic, but I really wanted to get to the heart of this. I just want to understand, since that was the key thing that you said you were a mistake, I wanted to understand, was that a, a, an official police board that rendered that no, evaluation? No, the police leadership the next morning after a police-involved shooting reviews a shooting. It was the morning after? I assume it to be, but yes, it's yes, so, right and, after. 
you, you had conveyed to me that that kind of shaped your, your thinking up through the, the eventual release the following a year later and then your, your public commentary in November of, of 2015. The, um, my understanding is that the, the mother of Laquan McDonald learned about the nature of the shooting when she was called by the funeral house who said to her, do you realize your son was shot multiple times, that his body is riddled with bullets? She didn't know, apparently, at that point. That information had not been shared with her. And um, then her attorney subpoenaed records in November of 2014. And when the attorney subpoenaed records, that that trigger the conversation that filled you in. I know you've said you never saw the, the videos, but filled you in on the, the fact that this was an unusual case where a, a child had been shot 16 times. As I said in the answer to uh, Chairman Menendez, I, you know, there is an investigation going on by three entities, the U.S. Attorney, the State's Attorney, IPRA. They were the ones dealing with this, and as I believe, you don't want a politician to make a unilateral decision while those investigations are going on because it would violate a sacrosanct protocol and principle of uh, ensuring that nothing is out prior to the investigation being wrapped up. Yes, Mayor, but that wasn't my question. My question was when her attorneys sought mm -hmm. the evidence from the city, is that when you learned about the, the nature of uh, what had happened from I, the, the city attorney or from the police or, or as so I, forth. As I said, when uh, the video became public is when I learned what happened and the consequence of what happened that night. So in December, the family viewed the, the tapes mm -hmm. and the city required that they enter into a non-disclose agreement. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty significant uh, decision you didn't. You were saying you had no idea of the circumstances of the shooting. No one had told you the child had been shot 16 times, or that the child was lying on the ground, or that a, the revolver was reloaded. You had no idea in December when the family reviewed the tapes. Senator, is that situation? The family approached the city about a settlement. An NDA is a, a standard practice uh, at that time, and also. The public information, as you know, when the city council is asked to award, work with the family, uh, come up with the resources to, for the compensation, all the uh, members of the city council heard that and it passed 50 to zero. So that was the kind of description that was in the public domain uh, when it was voted on. Yes, of course, I didn't ask about the NDA. I asked if, if at that point oh, I, you were briefed on the details of, of the shooting. The, Details were in the public domain when the uh, when the corporation council briefed the aldermen. So in February and March, the city reached out proactively. Please, uh, uh, Chairman, can I finish a few questions here? I don't know about a few questions, uh, but uh, this has been explored, and it's now almost two minutes over, so I'll give you another minute. Th thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, the, I'll submit questions for the record uh, so that you can address these things. Um, but uh, I think that in this time 
of uh, national reckoning with the challenge of Black Lives Matter when aldermen and state representatives and state senators say this was an issue, that there was close cooperation during your time as mayor between the mayor's office to, to essentially discourage the release of information uh, and to not develop significant reforms, which I know that you have a, a story to tell about the reforms, and I'll submit questions to record so you can, you can tell that story. I think it's important for this committee to, to actually uh, weigh this. And, um, and so thank you for meeting with me before. Uh, thank you for addressing this now. Um, but just to clarify, I was tr because all these things happened, the family requested the video. The city attorney reached out proactively before there was a lawsuit to ask for a settlement. The settlement was approved in a, in a less than one minute meeting with no public discussion. It seems hard to believe that all those things happened and yet you were never briefed on the details of the situation when you were leading the city. Can I, uh, since you brought up aldermanic letters, as you'll see also here, the leadership of the Black Caucus has signed a letter in support of my nomination. Those are the members that worked with me. It doesn't take away from the fact that, uh, as I said before, and I want to repeat because I think it's important, all those are not technicalities. This is a tragedy that happened, as you know, as you've made reference to what's going on in Portland, and as I said, no city of any size has not confronted the gulf and the gap that exists between police practices and the oversight and accountability. I made efforts of them. They missed the mark because they totally missed how level, how deep that distrust is. And as in the reverend or the pastor's letter, how broken the system is that we all relied on. Yes, and I did note that- uh, the, chair, uh, the chair would just say to my distinguished colleague, I've allowed you to go four minutes over the five minutes, so uh, I think that questions for the record would be appropriate. Thank, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Kaplan, before we adjourn this here, I don't want you to think you're not the object of my affection for the position you're going to have. So uh, let me ask you, uh, Singapore, along with other countries in the region, face a time of increasing geopolitical uncertainty with China's growing assertiveness in the Pacific. What's your assessment of how Singapore's thinking on China has evolved in recent years? How, how do we influence Singapore's approach towards both confronting and competing with China in a way that aligns it uh, more with our values, which I believe they generally share, uh, versus the values that China is, expo uh, is promoting? Uh, thank you very much for that uh, question. Um, the U.S. must engage with China from a position of strength, and strength comes from our partnerships and our partnerships within the region. Uh, we've talked about this uh, throughout this hearing, and I believe that Singapore is a tremendously strong partner of the United States. They're involved in our uh, F-35 program. Uh, we have uh, naval operations that we do with them. As the ranking member mentioned, we, we train their Air Force. So if I'm confirmed, I look forward to continuing to work with the government, continuing to come up ways for us to support um, a, a partnership that addresses these threats that China um, continues to bring upon not just the United States, but the world overall. Uh, 
Enduring uh, support for ASEAN is critical to the United States and posture in the Indo-Pacific and central to the engagement with our partnership with Singapore. When the foreign minister is here, we had a significant conversation about ASEAN. What steps would you take to help Singapore in bolstering ASEAN centrality in the Asia-Pacific uh, region? Well, I think, um, you know, the, the president and the secretary of state want to have a multifaceted approach to uh, the region. They have AUKUS. Uh, we have Quad, and of course we have ASEAN. And Singapore is a founding member of ASEAN. The United States has always been a firm supporter of ASEAN. The Secretary and the President have reaffirmed their commitment to ASEAN. And again, if confirmed, I look forward to working with the government, working with industry, working with Singapore to ensure that everyone knows that we are behind ASEAN, Singapore remains an important part of ASEAN, and ASEAN will play a critical role in the safety and security of the region. Uh, and finally, uh, Mayor Emanuel, I want to just go back to Japan very quickly, uh, but importantly, we need, and I've said this to uh, leaders from both countries who have come to visit us here in Washington, we need Japan and South Korea to understand that their unity along with us, is critical to deal with the regionals, uh, regional security questions and certainly with North Korea. And I think in my 30 years of doing foreign policy between the House and the Senate, this is not one of the best moments I've seen between the two countries. I hope you will uh, use upon confirmation your uh, efforts to try to get the Japanese from their side, and then we will get our not our person in uh, South Korea to do the same, to find a, some common ground. There are historical issues. I understand that. But, it sh but the security of both nations and its people should supersede uh, their common interests in that regard. Is that something we can count on you to try to do? A hundred percent, Mr. Chairman. And I would just, if I, in the remaining minutes here, just say this is no doubt there's been highs and lows in the relationship between Japan and South Korea. I think that given what North Korea has done and is doing, what China has done and is doing, makes this an opportunity in an organizing way to have both parties, or the TRI, meaning the United States, Japan, and South Korea, to now focus on what is not a theoretical threat, but a reality, as the recent test just the other day by North Korea has shown, that this is not uh, theoretical given the sub uh, test that was just some marine test that was just done. So that to me underscores there's a level of urgency for all parties to now find the common ground, focus on the future, focus on what binds us together, and not allow tensions of the past and disagreements to actually in any way endanger. And I do think endanger the relationship. I close with one other thought: China, Russia, North Korea are trying to find cracks and fissures in the alliances between the United States, Japan, United States and Korea, South Korea, United States, Japan and South Korea. Our job as a facilitator is to create the bonds of unity that we have speak with one voice, one interest and one imperative. And this is one of, if not the highest priority to find that unity so we can confront the attempt by China and North Korea to divide us. Finally. Uh as in all relationships, uh, the question of press freedom with Singapore was uh, raised earlier. 
In this case, uh, more than 475 U.S. children have been kidnapped to Japan, um, and the U.S. has named Japan a top three worst offender of international parental child abduction. There has been no significant improvement between, uh, since Japan acceded to the Hague Convention on the Civil Aspects of International Child Abduction uh, in 2014. Uh, so when you are confirmed, uh, I hope that you will make one of your priorities to get uh, the Japanese government to understand that when you enter into an international convention and when American children are involved, we certainly expect you to live up to your obligations under the convention. And, I would, and Mr. Chairman, uh, I would underscore this point and be part if I was fortunate to get the committee and the full Senate support to be confirmed. Your word is your bond. If you signed into an agreement to be trusted as a partner and ally, you must uphold the principle of that agreement. All right. The, this uh, record for this hearing will remain open until the close of business tomorrow, Thursday, October 21st. Uh, to members of the committee, please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than Thursday. To our nominees, uh, I would just urge you upon receipt, inevitably there will be questions for the record, uh, that you answer them expeditiously and fully. Uh, so that then we can consider your nominations before the committee for a business meeting. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.